0: Experience the deafening thunder that is Vader. The dementia that is the deranged mankind. The haunting mystery that is The Undertaker. And the unrelenting rage that is Stone Cold Steve Austin. Experience WWF The Music Volume 2. There are 15 of your favorite WWF original jams in all. To order, call 815-734-1161 or send a check or money order to the address on your screen. This album is available in stores, but why delay?
1: Get yours now.
0: WWF The Music,
1: Volume 2.
2: Hello and welcome to episode 84 of the New Generation Project podcast, where we have well and truly left the heroes of Hulkamania in the dust and are knee deep in the advent of attitude. We've come a long way since we first watched some episodes of a weird little television show called Shotgun Saturday Night over 15 months ago, and today we close our analysis of 1997 by taking a look at the WWF's final flagship television show of the year, it's Raw Is War 3. My name is Stuart Brooks, and I'm joined today, as ever, by the big fella, Paul Jellybean Scrivins. Hello. And Adam Baked Bean Wikes. Hello.
3: Hello. How are you, Stuart? Yeah, I'm not too bad. How about you guys? Pretty good. I'm quite tired, but okay, otherwise. It's been roaringly hot today. Yes, warm. It's sapped my strength.
2: Yeah, we're recording this on the Friday night, and it's been an absolute scorcher of a day in England. I gather by the time this goes out, it'll have probably rained a lot, but that's English weather, so... Uh,
3: yeah, it kind of does that. For anyone in America, an absolute scorcher of a day in England is kind of like an overcast day in Texas.
4: <laughs> Which is probably about right. So, so it's been kind of like low 20 degrees Celsius
3: but it's felt like high 40
4: degrees yeah
2: it's enough for everybody to like flood to the local park near to our house and just have barbecues and look like a sea of people
3: yeah yeah
4: and and for me and adam to both be wearing shorts yes you are both wearing shorts you you haven't shown your legs no i i don't feel comfortable with that level of exposure of flesh okay (laughs) whereas just look at adam do you want a story about the warm weather go on then it's not a very interesting one, but, it, but it's actually Never are. it's actually wrestling related. So the other day, so I think a couple of evenings ago, kind of got back from work just in the garden with the family. You know, nice hot day. And you know what, well, the kids, kids are just kind of playing on the, on the grass near me. So I just kind of like lie down on my stomach, just kind of, you know, just enjoying the sun, soaking up some rays, if you will. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, baby scrimmage just jumps on my back. Alan, Mabel and Diesel, <laughs> that was it. SummerSlam 95? Correct. Now, I reckon my son is probably about three stone, and it bloody hurt. <laughs> I could only imagine the pain that Kevin Nash went through. <laughs> Did you bury him to Mrs. Scriven's next day to ensure
2: like he never has a main event run in the company <laughs> again?
4: Well, I was, I was always kind of uh, low on him after his performance <laughs> a couple of <laughs> months earlier at King of the Ring.
3: In, in, this, in this analogy, right, so... Paul is Diesel, baby Scrivins is Mabel, and Mrs. Scrivins is Vince. Yes! That's quite accurate.
2: Well, who does that make and Golo? Sean? No, Mo.
3: No. Mo.
4: No. <laughs> Spot on. <laughs> but so, any, like, but actually, like, because he actually kind of like, I don't know where
3: he came from, like, literally just like jumped on me from out of nowhere. But it was, like, properly out of that spot. He probably doesn't understand quite what he's doing. In order to make him understand, maybe when he's lying down, you ought to jump on him.
4: Yeah, I definitely regret that. To make
3: him appreciate the pain that he put you through.
4: No, that's called child cruelty. Is it? Yes, yes, it is. It's called what?
3: Child cruelty.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Says Alan (laughs) Partridge.
2: Did you give him a lecture afterwards about being an unsafe worker? No, no, I didn't. Maybe you should have. (laughs) I just went... (laughs) So we've all just sat down and had some dinner. And as you hadn't seen it, Paul, we watched Pete Dunne versus Tyler Bate from NXT TakeOver Chicago. Adam, you and I watched it last weekend, but Paul, this was your first viewing. We probably should have done it as a live recording because some of the noises coming out of Paul's mouth were, you know, momentous.
3: Yeah.
4: I've not seen anything like it in a long time. Some of those moves, that one where he kind of, Tyler Bate, it looks like he's going to fly out the ropes. Yeah. Then all of a sudden does something weird with his shoulders, bounce backs and does something cool. Good analysis. Well, it is like, but the the whole that whole match is phenomenal and it's got such a good big fight feel. Yeah, the crowd really do a lot for that
2: show in general, but that yeah. match in particular. Like, it would have been so easy for a crowd to kind of just shit on something with guys they didn't know, but they were kind of knowledgeable about who those guys were from the yeah. start and they were up for it. And yeah, to give three standing ovations mid-match and pretty well deserved like yeah. occasionally you know this is awesome chance are a bit premature and fight forever is becoming a bit of a cliche and it did get that but you know kind of the reactions that match got i felt it very much deserved
4: yeah uh, th- that's that's one of the best matches i've seen in a very long
3: time excellent stuff and that's sort of like world of sport type opening yeah lots of sort of like map based stuff and then it, it built really nicely. It kinda of felt like a match that was incredibly well designed. Yeah. Everything had been thought out. Lots of the spots were brilliant. I love the one where they, they kinda of stand up but their their foreheads together. Yeah. yeah. And use that in order to, to stand up and keep themselves stable. I thought that was a really cool shot.
2: I think considering the WWE maybe missed out on isn't the right word, but didn't get let's go with that, Zack Sabre Jr, Marty Scurll and Will Ospreay for this British arm of their endeavors like they've done a really good job particularly with obviously tyler bate pete dunn trent seven to a lesser extent and mark andrews like Mm. yeah and and those guys have worked in a way that proves they they deserve that kind of exposure and that kind of focus and i'm really kind of desperate for them to book pete dunn versus mark andrews for the whatever the summerslam takeover Mm. card turns out to be because i think that has the potential to be even better than the the tyler bait pete dunn match it might not have that kind of special reaction that this match got but yeah those two are really phenomenal against each other
3: do you think they're going to keep everyone in this kind of british division or they're going to start moving them into doing different things
2: the idea seemingly is still that they film it as a weekly show and there was a special on the network a couple of nights prior that Adam, you and I watched. Paul, I, I don't think you've seen. They they filmed two nights in Norwich. So this was the one with the Dan chants, mm. which I thought were particularly humorous when the ref was counting. So mm. kept chanting Dan along with the pin mm. counts was hilarious. But... Yeah, seemingly it didn't turn out to be like four weeks worth of TV tapings. It was just kind of one special they put on the network. Yeah. So I presume at some point they'll be back to do more of it, whether they just feel they're not quite ready to do the show yet or what, I don't know. But they keep turning up in NXT periodically just to have matches, you know, those kind of top Mm. British guys. And it's a good way to kind of round out those NXT undercards, I think.
4: Yeah, Yeah. I I was going to say, I did see a little bit of hype... I think it might have been on an NXT watch with you briefly. For Jack Gallagher? Yeah. Against Tyler Bate? It was, did you see that? Yes, yeah. It was, it was good. Was that a good match? I, I need to see more Jack Gallagher.
2: If you head on over to our YouTube channel, you'll find the final video in the epic feud between Adam Weix and Paul Scrivens on SmackDown Here Comes the Pain.
4: It got a bit personal, didn't it? A
3: little bit, yes.
2: After failing to settle their issues in either the Elimination Chamber or Pop Divas action, they recreate one of the greatest WWF matches of all time, The Undertaker versus Shawn Michaels inside Hell in a Cell. How do their efforts stack up against the original? Well, we'll let you decide. Check out our social media for links to the bout or search for us on YouTube if you want to check it out. And there is a particular spot in, in this match which I think may even you know, raise the bar mm-hmm. on anything I've ever seen. It's mostly due to sort of a glitch in the video game. But, but it, it tickled me somewhat. In fact, I think it tickled all of us. Yeah. yeah. Last episode, we looked at one of the most infamous match finishes in WCW history. I say one of, it's nowhere near the. The conclusion to Hulk Hogan versus Sting at Starcade 1997. It's fair to say that Eric Bischoff and company ballsed up in a pretty epic manner, but we thought you guys could do better. Therefore, this week's challenge to you, the audience, was to book a sillier finish to Hulk Hogan versus Sting in ten words or less. And and I was very strict and stringent with this ruling. The following are our favourite suggestions. Charlie Crowley. American males, American males, (laughs) American males, American males, American males. males. Mm. Ten words. Two words five times, but ten words. Jump in there before
3: Scott. I think he did. Wow. Ah. Barry Walsh. Luger and Buff run out. Chinlock City, bitch. Perfect.
4: (laughs) That needs to be a T-shirt. You know, population of Chinlock City. (laughs) Chris Palmer. Match ends in a dance-off to Paul Scriven's family playlist. (laughs) (laughs) Quite a lot
2: of feedback last episode about your efforts in the audience challenge. Some people feeling like, you know,
4: you used your political backstage power to get your own suggestions in. I did. <laughs> <laughs> like I'll be honest, the idea when I came with lots of suggestions is I actually thought that you might basically cut most of them out, maybe like save one of the, or maybe two of the funny ones, but you just didn't edit it out. I was, I was quite surprised, so
2: yeah. Do you know how editing works when you sort of say one thing after the other repeatedly? It's very difficult to like pick one of two bits out of it. You do a very good job though. Yeah, Sometimes. Graham Robert Watkins. Gordon Sumner wins referee ballot and somehow wins world title.
4: Fair enough.
3: Mark Davis. Sting died on the way back to his home planet. <laughs> it's
4: it's Poochie from The Simpsons. Oh. Matt Lewinsky. Rare white Bengal tiger attack. <laughs> <laughs> Eric Johnston. Is... Is that the Yeti?
3: <laughs> yep, that would be sillier. John Campbell. Sting turns into a rad scorpion. Hogan dies from radiation poisoning.
2: That's, oh. an, that's
3: another one. I just, is that a, a comic reference? It's a video game oh. reference. Ah,
2: a very good video game reference. Indeed, what video yes. games? Fallout. Never played a Fallout game, Paul, I'm guessing.
4: They're, they're, those games are really not my cup of gravy. <laughs> Joe Dudley McCoy. Terry Funk runs in with his horse. (laughs) (laughs) Christian Roy. Nick Patrick submits Sting with the Scorpion Deathlock. Yeah. That would be confusing. Yeah. yeah. But I wouldn't mind seeing that. That, That's probably better (laughs) than the actual finish.
3: (laughs) Joseph Stofan. Four words Doink, Dink, Pink, Wink.
2: I'd forgotten about that. You know, like, it's <laughs> one of those matches. And I think that was the one match I ever refused to just oh. offer a comment on. What,
3: midget Clowns.
2: Midget Clowns and Midget Kings,
4: yes. yes. Andy Bainbridge. Hogan smears dog food on Sting. <laughs> Ken Shamrock runs in. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Neil Short. Devil's Island sues Hogan for assault led out by police. <laughs> you get yeah. it? A- assault on Devil's mm. Island.
3: I hear that's a great film.
2: I hear it's a great film.
3: I quite want to watch it. Adam Wade. Scooby-Doo ending. Sting unmasks Hogan. It's another Sting. (laughs) (laughs) Yikes.
4: (laughs) That's that's a really good idea. And you can say, I would have gotten away for it if it wasn't for these pesky kids. (laughs) More wrestling matches should have Scooby-Doo endings. (laughs) Michael Corvin. NWO conga line distracts Sting. Hogan wins by (laughs) roll-up.
2: They've got enough members to do a conga Mm. line. Barry Coffey, RoboCop returns, turns on Sting. Hogan christens him NWO bocop
4: (laughs) (laughs) That's really good.
2: Anyone talented enough with Photoshop needs to make an NWO version of RoboCop, please.
4: It's like that spray painting on his face.
2: You ever seen RoboCop, Paul?
4: Uh, no, but is it a is it a robot policeman? Yes, it does what it says on the tin. Then
3: <laughs> S. Doyle Granger, Nash returns, heart attack behind him, eating a burger. Marks. <laughs>
4: what? <laughs> Jacob Cristobal, Paul Scrivens interferes. Names off random song titles. <laughs> Could happen. <laughs> It'd be a bit like
2: that Chris Jericho list of a thousand and four holds promo, wouldn't it? Just Paul scrolling through his <laughs> and, phone.
4: And I will say, when I got round here earlier, I did you sit on my phone and got my playlist up again and did a few more, didn't I? You did, yes. A couple of good ones, if I uh, do say so myself. John Levasseur
2: Handshake, posing, 15 minutes of gymnastics, dive Sting wins hug (laughs) I think this has escaped you this was a criticism of modern wrestling matches posted online by a guy called Rip Rogers and Ah. then backed up by Randy Orton Will Ospreay's made a t-shirt out of it
3: (laughs) backed up by Randy Orton yes okay so does he not like that sort of match
2: He, he apparently doesn't like the modern indie style no
3: he prefers big sperm entrance maggot projection boredom Kate Hulston, Sting wakes up, it was all just a dream.
2: <laughs> that should have been the ending of WCW. Like that that, did, that it should the, have been Ric Flair.
3: It was the end of Sunset Beach, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Like, terrible, terrible show, carries on, carries on. End episode, she wakes up, it was all a dream. <laughs> it's a bit of a cop-out.
4: No. Somewhat. Matthew Robinson, Milton Bradley Karazi Fighters Tournament. <laughs> to the death. <laughs>
2: Adam's almost spitting his tears uh, on that one.
3: <laughs> you should advertise Milton Bradley karate fighters.
2: Have you seen the end of the tournament? Did you see that when I was watching the
4: Roars? No, but you oh. reported on it, didn't you?
2: It's, yeah.
3: It's where Jerry Lawler wins, but cheated his way through. So, so, so Sonny
2: wins. Yeah, so Sonny wins. So it turns out Jerry Lawler bribed the ref, stuck gum to his karate fighter, <laughs> and seduced Sonny's karate fighter with a female action figure. <laughs> <laughs> All revealed by post-match security camera.
3: Mm.
2: Yeah. No one saw that coming. Now, this next one's actually a haiku. Okay.
3: Okay.
2: Don Manos. Hulk Hogan books it. Sting cannot be put over. (laughs) Pastomania.
3: Very good work. Yeah, I'm really... The old 575. Yeah, yeah, I really like that. Mm. Ash Preston. Match happens during the commercial breaks of Police Academy 6. (laughs) (laughs) There you go.
4: (laughs) It's all TNT would give them. (laughs)
3: Mark Holmes.
4: Hogan hits a Canadian destroyer, then a 450 splash.
2: <laughs> I really want to see that as well, Paul. I think you'll like this one, Daniel Walker. During Hogan's entrance, some farmers drop a cow on him. <laughs> yes. Who else are you going to get to do this main event? Buff Bagwell.
3: Oh. <laughs> He's primarily a mid-card wrestler. He's an unknown quantity. quantity. Michael Lepore. Several Italian men cover Sting in spaghetti. Pastavania runs wild. Mm. <laughs> you could eat your way
4: out of it. Dominic Shandler's Hogan Pins Sting after a sidewalk slam. <laughs> the Interrogator approves.
2: <laughs> the Interrogator's got great new music on Raw that's way too good for it. Mm.
3: Yeah, I love how upset you were about that.
2: It goes on to be used by the Acolytes for a tiny bit. But, oh, okay. Yeah, like, far too good a theme for that guy. Mark Holmes, whose name I'm not going to pronounce like... Holmes. <laughs> Sting is hitting the groin with a football. <laughs> is that another Simpsons reference? I think reference? that's another yeah. Simpsons reference, yeah.
3: Harry Green. Brett pins Nick Patrick, <clears throat> awards the title to Bagwell. <laughs> yeah, that, that would be silly. Mm.
4: But again, not beyond the realms of possibility. Oh, yeah. Have you given this just to see what I do with this name? Tony Haveranen. Time-travelling Jinder Mahal. <laughs> Beats them both for the championship. <laughs> <laughs> We'd all like to see that.
2: Adam, as a long-time proponent of Jinder Mania. In fact, I think if... <laughs> I can't remember what episode it would have been when Drew and Jinder got released... But I I definitely remember us discussing it. Yeah, you were upset. You were upset. Yeah, I like
3: three MB. I like Jinder Mahal. I'm not sure how I feel about him being champion, (laughs) but but I I think I'm on board with it. And I think I was more on board with it than almost everyone else on the planet. Yeah. Do do
4: you ever think they should they should have a a gimmick where they have a northern wrestler that just goes that becomes champion just goes I champion. (laughs) (laughs) I wonder if
2: you know the betting market in 2013 for first member of 3MB to become world champion. What odds you would have gotten on Jinder Mahal. Well, the, he would have probably been the outsider.
3: Yeah, but it's the really weird thing, isn't it? That's is still fairly fresh in people's memories, I would say, 3MB, because it was so ridiculous that you had a one-man band, and that kind of works because he it looks a bit like one-man band trash. But then you put with him like an Indian-Canadian and a rather large Scottish man (laughs) and make them into a three-man band which is ridiculous so it stays in people's minds for quite a bit because it looked so silly and then you bring him back and just make him champion and forget about it have they not referenced this or is this what's going to be the big build towards next year's Wrestlemania
4: (gasps) a triple threat triple 3MB in a three-way dance fuck that three-way shield match (laughs) (laughs) it's
2: all about Jinder v Heath v Drew 3MB dance Hmm. 3MB collide Scott Cavaliero. Ah. The American males reunite. Hogan and Sting run for cover. <laughs> Good.
3: They don't want to be their weekend lovers. Barry Coffey. Crush and gold are standing as proxies. Instant boom period. <laughs>
4: <laughs> Michael Hansen, Adam runs in. Declares a draw for
3: lack of acceptable mullets. <laughs> I'm calling this match off. Yep, no one's hair is silly enough. Ring that bell. Ding, ding. Actually, you probably would have ordered it to Dick Patrick. Dick- <laughs> Did you say Dick Patrick? No, Nick Patrick. Nick Patrick. The had a mullet. Who's Dick Patrick?
2: His brother. <laughs> Nate Saros. Dance off. Disco Inferno is your new champion.
3: Yes. Mm. Or possibly Alex Wright. Yes. yes. Christopher Santos. Armoured Johnson, doing the genius gimmick, reads a lovely poem. <laughs> yep, that's silly.
2: Yeah, that might be the single silliest combination of performer into another gimmick I've ever heard. Well done.
4: Ahmed Johnson, the genius. Richard Quarry. Nick Patrick does a ridiculously slow count. Hogan still wins. (laughs) (laughs) There were a ton of suggestions for
2: this one. I think this might have been one of my favourites. I I really do feel the sort of ten-word limit encourages creativity mm. in a very minimalist kind of way
3: mm, okay
2: so thank you to everyone who submitted thank yeah. you. an absolute cracking job this yeah. time
3: wonderful stuff
2: do you love pro wrestling merchandise do you love surprises Then what could be better than a box full of wrestling goodies delivered to your door each month? Go to www.wrestlecrate.co.uk right now and select your monthly plan, starting at just 11 pounds 99 WrestleCrate offer you a mix of content from the WWE and other top wrestling promotions around the world, handpicking you loot from Ring of Honor, Chikara, Progress, Preston City Wrestling and more. Inside a Wrestle Crate, you will find exclusive shirts, superstar autographs, action packed DVDs, and collectibles you won't find elsewhere, such as books, caps, magazines, pins, badges, prints, homeware, colouring books, bottle openers, toys, games, and more. And if you want 10% off your first crate, enter New Gen Podcast at the checkout to receive a discount. Wrestle Crate, the world's first wrestling subscription box. So, before we begin discussing the episode of Rory's is War that we've got lined up today, I feel like we need to discuss something from an episode a couple of weeks prior. It's on the December 15th episode marked Raw 238 on the network and occurs one hour and nine minutes into the show. It's known as Vince McMahon's The Cure for the Common Show promo and we'll play it in its entirety now.
5: It has been said that anything can happen here in the World Wrestling Federation but now more than ever, truer words have never been spoken. This is a conscious effort on our part to open the creative envelope, so to speak, in order to entertain you in a more contemporary manner. Even though we call ourselves sports entertainment because of the athleticism involved, the key word in that phrase is entertainment. The WWF extends far beyond the strict confines of sports presentation into the wide open environment of broad-based entertainment. We borrow from such program niches like soap operas, like the Days of Our Lives, or music videos such as those on MTV. Daytime talk shows like Jerry Springer and others. Cartoons like the King of the Hill on Fox. Sitcoms like Seinfeld and other widely accepted forms of television entertainment. We in the WWF think that you, the audience, are quite frankly tired of having your intelligence insulted. We also think that you're tired of the same old simplistic theory of good guys versus bad guys. Surely the era of the superhero who you to say your prayers and take your vitamins is definitely passé. Therefore, we've embarked upon a far more innovative and contemporary creative campaign that is far more invigorating and extemporaneous than ever before. However, due to the live nature of Raw in the war zone, we encourage some degree of parental discretion as it relates to the younger audience allowed to stay up late. Other WWF programs on USA, such as Saturday Morning Live Wire and Sunday Morning Superstars, where there's a 40% increase in the younger audience, obviously, however, need no such discretion. We are responsible television producers who work hard to bring you this outrageous, wacky, wonderful world known as the WWF. Through some 50 years, the World Wrestling Federation has been an entertainment mainstay here in North America and all over the world. One of the reasons for that longevity is as the times have changed, so have we. I'm happy to say that this new, vibrant, creative direction has resulted in a huge increase in television viewership, for which we thank USA Network and TSN for allowing us to have the creative freedom but most especially we would like to thank you for watching Raw in the Warzone are definitely the cure for the common show
3: So what did you think to that? I don't know actually, I kind of like it and I understand of it's like historical significance but the phrasing of it, does it not just feel like everything that I've done up until now is crap so now I'm <laughs> going to do something else
4: oh, honest, I thought it was quite good I mean, don't get me wrong, Vince is highly patronising. But you know what, I quite liked it and I thought it was quite sensible and refreshingly honest in the fact that basically we're now going to... Yeah, it is kind of like... It's almost like an admission that they've been failing and now we're going to do something different and they're saying, this is where our USP is. I don't think that's a bad thing to get it out there, actually, that we're going for this and we're not going to worry so much about the wrestling, we're going to entertain you. But was this something that really needed to be said or would it have been better to show, not tell? I don't. I, I actually don't mind him just saying like outright. This is what we're doing.
3: I guess most people that have been watching the product already know that this is happening. Yeah. So do they need it explicitly saying? But like you say, is is,
4: is does the whole fact that he's having this kind of conversation not just have that extra level of bite into WCW?
2: Was the WWF insulting its audience's intelligence at this time?
3: I don't think so because. Things have changed now. For like, what are you talking about? Because he talks about the, the stereotypical good guy versus bad guy. <laughs> it's. I don't think that's really been happening in the last year or so. Yeah, has it? Like the the lines have been blurred. So he's not in, sort of in the intelligence of the people that are watching it at the minute. He might be making them feel like idiots for watching about five years ago,
4: though. Is also making kind of a point uh, in terms of answering? Things like we saw in the documentary in the Wrestling With Shadows. Yeah, I mean, that that's what I've got
2: noted down. Does this all link back to that discussion on Off The Record that we saw as part of Wrestling With Shadows? Mm-hmm. Seems to be like that. That seems like a, a direct answer, doesn't it, as much as anything? Is it possible to appeal to both kids and adults at the same time, particularly with the kind of product that they're producing?
3: Well, yeah, he does make this thing, doesn't he, where if we've got these other shows that are on at this time where it'll be 40% less...
4: There's there's 40% more kids watching this. That's right, yeah.
3: 40% more kids So it's going to be a different type of style to appeal to them. But the thing is that if the kid is watching that, they're going to want to watch the rest of the product as well. So they're going to want to watch the stuff with the more adult content.
2: Especially when half of those Saturday morning shows is showing you what happened on Raw.
3: Yeah, so why would you distinct? You're never going to have, like the kids who say, well, I only watch these two shows in the morning because I don't want to watch the well let's be honest the good stuff that happens <laughs> on the later shows
4: it'd be really interesting to see um if there's any way to, to kind of get hold of what happens to their demographic over kind of like the period say from 1990 to 2000 i think it'd yeah. be really interesting to see what happens to those figures well yeah i think kind of going into 2000 it appeals a lot more to young males
2: kind of i would guess 15 to 24 perhaps something like that yeah What do you make to this idea that we borrow from other genres of television, like the days of our lives, music videos such as those on MTV, daytime talk shows like Jerry Springer and others, cartoons like The King of the Hill or sitcoms like Seinfeld and other widely accepted forms of television entertainment?
3: I did think to myself, which music videos exactly, Vince, are you talking about? (laughs) And
2: which episodes of King of the Hill...
3: Yeah. Have, have, you taken ever, from? have you ever watched King of the Hill? Do you think it's a, a cartoon about Jerry Lawler? <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm
4: surprised it didn't reference like South Park Friends. I thought, you, I thought
3: he was going to say Friends, but he said Seinfeld. I've never really watched Seinfeld. No, so I, I, I can't really yeah. comment on what it's like. They,
4: they should have totally had a stable where it's kind of like three young guys and three young girls. They're all good friends. <laughs> Just, <laughs> <laughs> they could hang out like the Mean Street Posse, could have had coffee with three women.
3: i wonder which parts he's actually borrowing from these things that he's talking about i get the bit like to be fair you get
4: the bit of soap opera like i get the kind of the analogy even if it's not like a direct kind of translation of it i do kind of get what he's going at he's i think he's just emphasizing this might sound bad but don't watch us to watch wrestling i think it's essentially what he's saying isn't it but,
2: but it's so. this kind of thing that Vince has always been after to be accepted as something other than pro wrestling. That's a very interesting point, yes. Like, he wants to be compared, and he says, widely accepted forms of television entertainment. It's him saying, we are one of these widely accepted mm. forms of television entertainment. We aren't wrestling that your granddad watched. Like, this this is us, we borrow from these other shows, you know. Okay, we didn't watch Seinfeld, but I gather it was really popular. King of the Hill certainly was. Jerry Springer certainly was. I imagine Days of Our Lives was. Like, group us in with those. Don't group us in with WCW or ECW or any of the local stuff you might see on your television. That's not us. We're these other shows. We're more popular. Yeah, basically. Has the WWF continued to change with the time since this? So... I agree with him in the sense that, yes, in the last 18 to 24 months, like, the product looks wildly different than it did before. And it very clearly has changed with the times. But has it continued to do so since? Or has it been stuck trying to, to a certain extent, recapture these sort of glory years of 98 to 2001?
3: In some ways, yeah. And uh, we've mentioned it before, haven't we, that Vince will try and alter his product, in order to stay ahead of competition, but since the competition is gone, yeah he doesn't have the same motivations anymore, so is he motivated to move with the times and become more accepted? I mean he's the only show realistically that's like massive and could be syndicated all around the world. Um, so he doesn't need to, um, but there is still this this harking back to the time where things were. Dynamic and changing, and forward-thinking, and hence you still get all the attitude era guys coming out of the big shows, but he's not got the same motivations anymore, and he hasn't since he swallowed up everything that was going.
4: I think you're right. I think Vince has got somewhat of a, a preoccupation with the attitude era, and I don't know. Maybe it's just that he had such a kind of influential role with his kind of feud with Austin, yeah, and he just enjoyed that. So he's kind of like, this is this is what it's got to be like. It's got to, that's got to have that level of of heat. But you're never gonna capture that and actually it probably gets in the way of progress. This reliance on the the kind of the old stars and it kind of you know, like like say, kind of you get to WrestleMania and how much of the time is spent focusing on on really showcasing the, the best of the young talent. Is Vince still trying to position himself as a babyface here, giving the audience what
2: they want? We're not insulting your intelligence anymore. We're going to borrow from these shows you like. That old stuff, that's passé. This is the stuff you like, and I'm the man giving it
3: to you. And that other channel, they're still doing the stuff that I insulted you with 10 years ago. So, you know, don't listen to those guys. Listen to me. I don't know. Does he still want to be the babyface? Is he not? changed his idea yet because he clearly does change his idea of who he is and what he can be in the future into one of the greatest heel characters that's ever been produced in wrestling is he still at this kind of transitional phase where he, he wants to be the good guy he wants to be liked he wants to be the commentator that people say vince you did a great job commentating i love your fake laugh but he can never get there because he's quite fundamentally unlikable
2: And is this all a dig at Brett's and Brett's views on the way the product was going? And Brett's obviously quite outspoken on the Off the Record show and he writes about it in the Calgary Sun. And even when he was under contract,
4: he was saying, you know, I don't like the direction of the company. Yeah. If it is, I think that's very indulgent on Vince's part because that shouldn't be anywhere near his list of priorities. I think if he's doing that as a response to the kind of, the kind of the Off the Record show and the kind of the ongoing discussion from that, I kind of see that fair enough as in, There's a point to be addressed. If it's just to have a go at Brett, that's stupid.
3: Interesting bit of television, though. I've never seen Mm. it
4: before. I I, I actually thought he came across, not well, but in the the role that he was trying to do as basically a sleazy salesman, I thought he actually fulfilled that role quite well. Do you think that's what he was supposed to be? Probably not what he's supposed to be, but it it was what he was. (laughs) 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 It really was kind of what he was, but I kind of thought, you know what? Because it has got that kind of... Patronising tone to it, and it's kind of—I thought his delivery of the lines was was quite slick. To be fair to him, it's weird, isn't
2: it? And we will get to see kind of the very beginnings of it, but like how kind of not bad a talker he was as a commentator, but he just wasn't particularly good at it. To like how incredible a talker he becomes in terms of the character he portrays, mm. like yeah. it's it's chalk and cheese to quote Paul Scriven. Well,
3: and yeah. um, we don't know Vince but we know a lot about Vince, and some might say that the character of Mr. McMahon is much more Vince than the commentator McMahon ever mm. was. Okay. So as the commentator, he's playing a character, and he ain't that good. As Mr. McMahon, mm. he's basically ramping up his own persona, and so he's just playing an exaggerated version of himself so it becomes easier, and it's so much better because it doesn't come across as fake. Like The, the laugh is a very good thing, The Vince laugh as a commentator is so manufactured and therefore comes across as so insincere. Mm. Mr McMahon doesn't have that laugh. He has a more sinister laugh, (laughs) which is probably actually way more accurate to what the guy is like himself. Mm -hmm. (laughs)
2: Monday, the ninth of December 1997, and we are live from the Nassau Coliseum in Long Island, New York, in front of a sold-out live crowd of eleven thousand two hundred and forty three for a live gate of two hundred seventy one thousand three hundred eighty eight, an all-time record for a raw taping at the time.
3: Oh, I hear they were turning people away at the door.
2: Mm. I think they did. The show drew a three point six rating against WCW Monday Nitros four point six five, which is about par for the course for the time, like that's about what the gap generally is.
3: It still sound like big numbers. Yeah,
2: it does though. sound
4: like a big number still, so wrestling overall doing better. Over
2: on TNT, you would have seen Goldberg pin Glacier within a minute. Cool. Chris Benoit beat Hammer via disqualification. The Ultimo Dragon capturing the WCW cruiserweight title from Eddie Guerrero in just over a minute.
3: I was going to say that sounds amazing, but mm. the time doesn't give it a chance to be amazing. It was
2: a whirlwind of a match. New US champion Diamond Dallas Page successfully defending against Mortis. Booker T pinning Disco Inferno to win the WCW television title, oh. his first major singles strap. How many title matches are on this Nitro? <laughs> There's more. Kurt Hennick pinned Chris Jericho. Lex Luger got his big win over Buff Bagwell via submission. And finally, a rematch for the WCW world title between Sting and Hollywood Hulk Hogan. That went off the air with no decision being rendered. What? Yay. Of course. Seriously? In a dark match before the tapings began, Skull Von Crus defeated Adam Flash. Guess guys having a try out there. Who? Taped for Shotgun Saturday Night Before Raw where Mark Henry beating D'Lo Brown. His estimate of being back in the ring within a week was, it was eight days, mm. so he wasn't wow. far wrong
3: well to Mark Henry
2: Mm. Vader pinning Julio Sanchez Jeff Jarrett over Scott Taylor via submission Blackjack Wyndham and Blackjack Bradshaw defeating Recon and Sniper via disqualification when the Jackal interfered and finally Steve Blackman beating Jimmy Cicero by submission Uh,
3: Jimmy Cicero?
2: there's obviously still jobbers knocking about here and there okay okay
1: John Michaels you have not defended your European title in over 60 days I will defend this title against anybody, anywhere,
0: anytime. Your opponent tonight will be Hunter Hearst Helmsley. Last week, it appeared that Commissioner Slaughter had succeeded in commencing the destruction of Degeneration generation X. But out of nowhere, Owen Hart launched a preemptive strike. Wait a Owen Hart cut that tape off! Look at Owen Hart! Generation X pride conspiracy between Owen Hart and Commissioner Slaughter, but the dirtiest players in the game refused to be one-upped. DX set out to deliver a hefty dose of embarrassment and humiliation, not only to Sergeant Slaughter, but to the entire World Wrestling Federation.
6: It was a ruse! A point.
0: sergeant slaughter get the last laugh after ordering triple h to defend his european title tonight against owen hart what could degeneration x have planned next but up next the rattlesnake plans to throw the book the book of austin at the artist formerly known as Goldust. that's coming up next right here tonight on wwf raw
2: we open with a video package that recaps the European title match between Shawn Michaels and Triple H on the previous week's show. Narrator Michael Cole speculates that Commissioner Slaughter had almost broken up D-Generation X prior to Owen Hart's attack, but that ultimately DX embarrassed Slaughter and the entire World Wrestling Federation. It was a ruse, a ploy, a plot, a plan, a charade, a conspiracy, a sham, cries announcer Jim Cornette. We've been conned, hoodwinked, bamboozled, flimflammed, had the wall pulled over our eyes, he continues, in an excellent piece of commentary. Flimflammed especially. Michaels and Helmsley cry after their match, mocking Slaughter, but Michael Cole wonders if Slaughter will have the last laugh, having booked Triple H to defend his European title against Owen Hart here tonight. Or will DX have something up their sleeves?
3: Quite possibly. Yes. I quite like the video package. I like a bit of recap. Gives a bit of context to what's been going on. I did see, when you were watching this, the European title defence of Shawn Michaels against <laughs> Hunter Hurst Helmsley. Why is this doing for the European title? As he just mocks his way through half a match, does a really silly dance, and then um, does a splash to win. Because Shawn Michaels has basically spent the last however long since he won it, mocking the title openly on TV, Mm. and now they've just sort of like give it away in a joke match. And what is this doing for that title?
2: Nothing, but, you know, it doesn't matter anymore. Like, as sad as that sounds to say about a belt that was only invented like eight months ago, nine months ago, like, it doesn't matter. Like, like you're right, Sean has just openly mocked its existence since he beat Bulldog for it.
3: Mm. Yeah. Which, again, lends thought to the idea that maybe he shouldn't have won it. You know, the the belt should have been basically kept clean and away from his grubby little mitts. Now,
2: Paul, you were quite critical last episode of the sort of match, match, match format of WCW Starcade, (laughs) and you didn't really know what was going on, which is fine because we haven't watched WCW in a couple of months. Now, it's been about three weeks television time since DX happened. Do you feel sufficiently caught up with this video package?
4: Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I do it's given me the the gist of what's going on before all of that happens though
2: Stone Cold Steve Austin faces off with the artist formerly known as Goldust next there's a screen cap here for the match Goldust has a rather interesting outfit on it's bizarre
3: it's one of the stranger images that I've ever seen on wrestling I think it seems odd at this point so why is Stone Cold having a bit of an altercation with the artist. Oh, this
2: is completely out of nowhere. Like, they haven't interacted on TV kind of prior to this. No build
3: whatsoever. This is just something that's happening tonight. Yeah. Okay, fair enough.
2: After the Roy's War opening credits, which still contain Psycho Sid and Brett the Hitman Hart briefly, Pyro goes off in the arena at an almost Nitro-esque level as the audience goes wild, holding up an ocean of signs to the camera announcers Jim Ross, Michael Cole, and Kevin Kelly welcome us to the final episode of Raw of the Year in front of a sold-out crowd. Hmm. Three-man, play-by-play, announce team. Yeah, where's the colour?
4: Well, uh, I can give you a bit of extra insight on the opening to this because missus Scrivens caught the very start of this. So she said that the title sequence made it look a lot better than it will be. <laughs> 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 because the, I, I really do like that opening sequence. I think it's very good. And she said, Why are so many people there? Because
3: it's popular.
4: Yeah. Well, so this is just a raw taping. I think it's probably lost on her book. <laughs>
2: What did you make to this three-man announced team, though, to to open the show? Like, over the past couple of months of Raw, they've they've obviously kind of appropriated the Nitro thing where your commentary team changes Mm. throughout the show. Yeah. And almost on, like, a monthly basis, they seem to go through different cycles. Like, they've had Jim Ross and Jim Cornette. They've obviously had JR and Jerry Lawler. They've had Michael Cole and Kevin Kelly on their own. They've had Michael Cole and Kevin Kelly and Jim
3: Ross. I imagine Michael Cole and Kevin Kelly Kelly. on their own is... is uncomfortably difficult
4: i i'm i'm really not that impressed by kevin kelly's performance me
3: neither actually, on this in show this. okay, okay. I, I just find him so bland and also michael cole's terrible
2: yeah jr kind of sits out a lot of the first hour like he offers yeah.
3: stuff but
4: like he he doesn't say a lot he's,
2: like,
3: not, he's probably quite upset that he's there
4: i mean he should have really been the spearhead there and the others kind of contributed around him to to kind of learn the craft I mean, I guess if you want to kind of, like I say, appropriate the Nitro
2: structure, you'd perhaps go with something like either JR and Jim Cornette or Michael Cole and Jim Cornette for the first hour and then JR and Jerry Lawler for the second hour or just something like that. It just feels so weird for JR to be like a minor part of the first hour and then the lead announcer for the second hour. Do you think it's
3: kind of an idea of Michael Cole, you're new into it, you need to learn the ropes? Very possibly. You take the lead on this and use Kevin Kelly as you go to, and JR's basically your safety net. If you really fuck up, because he's dead good, he'll jump in and just and pull it through for you.
2: And it might very well be a test to kind of see which one out of Cole and Kelly sort of comes through, which one yeah. actually is the better of the two, which one mm. asserts themselves more, which one shows more personality, which one shows more aptitude for kind of doing the lead play-by-play announcing. That might be the idea of it. Yeah. I actually thought Kevin Kelly was quite good in the summer of 96. There was like a month randomly where he took over from Vince and, and I, I really quite liked him for that month, but he's been kind of lost since then and then randomly reappears doing mm. this.
3: And does he eventually end up as just backstage guy?
2: Yeah, I think he does a bit of sort of the sea level show stuff and then, yeah, he's obviously the object of The Rock's scorn until yeah. Jonathan Coachman's the thing.
3: Mm. So in many ways, his most famous stuff is being assaulted by The Rock, isn't it?
2: Yeah, is it him that's forced to stand there with his finger up his nose? Is that? I think that's Kevin Kelly, isn't it? it
3: just gets called an ugly hermaphrodite sometimes, doesn't he? I think that's one that sticks in my mind. Which
2: is actually quite offensive.
3: Pretty offensive, yes.
2: So, Vince McMahon opened the December 8th episode of Rory's War, making his way to the ring for his first live appearance on the show since the events of Montreal. Initially receiving a mixed reaction, Vince's reception officially turned frosty once he began his speech. McMahon claimed that Stone Cold Steve Austin had been getting away with murder in the World Wrestling Federation as of late, assaulting WWF officials and announcers. McMahon claimed that Austin finally went too far the previous evening at D-Generation X in your house when he endangered the WWF fans by driving his pickup truck into the arena and using it as a weapon. McMahon then decreed that he was forcing Austin to defend his WWF Intercontinental Championship against The Rock later in the evening. Steve Austin then emerged to his usual rapturous response, somewhat miffed that he was being ordered around by McMahon, telling the WWF owner that he did what he wanted, when he wanted. Standing up to Stone Cold, Vince claimed that if Austin did not defend his title later in the evening, then there would be consequences. Austin claimed that he didn't care what Vince's consequences were and said that he would spend some time throughout the show backstage drinking beer and eating hot dogs, deciding if he <laughs> felt like defending his belt. And if he didn't, well, he'd just find out what Vince's consequences were. And yes, Adam will back me up. There is a shot of Austin just backstage eating hot dogs.
3: Yeah, good. Uh, he's not drinking any beers.
2: Vince McMahon would be shown at ringside along with a number of other WWF officials as The Rock made his way to the ring for what was scheduled to be the show's main event. As Austin entered the squared circle, the WWF owner did also, querying Stone Cold as to why he wasn't ready to compete. Austin said that he was ready to compete even though he was wearing jeans, but he had decided not to wrestle as he wanted to know what Vince's consequences were. Austin wanted to know if Vince was going to fire him, Vince said he wasn't going to fire Austin, but that Austin was forcing him to strip Stone Cold of the Intercontinental title and present it to The Rock. Austin claimed that while Vince couldn't strip him of the strap without getting his teeth knocked out, he was instead going to forfeit the belt, as there was only one title in the WWF that he cared about, the World Wrestling Federation title. After presenting The Rock with the IC title and shaking his hand, Austin stunned the new champion and left with the belt, claiming he had plans for it, and that if Vince wanted to know what they were, he needed to tune in next week. Same Stone Cold time, same Stone Cold channel. That's good. Austin then knocked McMahon off the apron as he was running the ropes, with the show ending with McMahon being helped to his feet by the likes of Pat Patterson and Gerald Briscoe. The following week on the December 15th Roarers' War, The Rock made his way to the ring alongside his Nation of Domination pals. Introducing himself as the undisputed Intercontinental Champion and The People's Champion, The Rock cut the nation's leader Farukov when he went to speak, claiming that The Champ is talking. The Rock went on to say that The Champ wasn't a happy man, as Austin had stolen his strap, ordering Austin to come to the ring and return his IC title. Austin's music hit, and the rattlesnake appeared on the stage, although the Intercontinental title was nowhere to be seen. Austin told The Rock that nobody ordered him to do a damn thing and that he should know that by now. Austin reminded Rock that Rock had stolen the belt from him previously but that later in the show he would reveal where The Rock's belt was. Not happy with this, Rock informed Austin he had one hour to return The Rock's property or the entire nation would beat him down. During Mark Henry's return bout against the Brooklyn brawler later in the show, Jim Ross would mention that they had been notified that Steve Austin had left the building, but had invited a WWF camera crew along with him. Once the hour-time limit expired, the nation made their way back to the ring. Quickly, Steve Austin would be shown on the Titantron, holding the IC title, telling The Rock that when he gave The Rock the belt, he didn't earn a damn thing, but if he wanted the belt back, he was going to have to earn it. Indeed... He was going to have to find it. Austin offered Rock some supplies for doing exactly that. A mask, a snorkel, a regulator, an oxygen tank, some flippers, a cell phone and a pager. All of which he lobbed off a bridge, followed by the intercontinental title itself as Rock freaked out in the ring. Mm. Mm. So that's quite a famous angle, Austin, stealing the belt and throwing it in the river. What do you make of Austin forfeiting the title?
3: Again, what does that say about your IC title?
2: Not a great deal.
3: Because he basically rubbishes it as, this isn't important to me, there's only one thing that's important to me.
2: The thing is, like, him coming back and recapturing that title from Owen was kind of a necessary chapter in their story. Yeah. But Austin's story is clearly towards a bigger title, and yes, he should be going for that WWF title now. Even losing to someone who is as hot as The Rock as a heel even if it's via bucket loads of
4: interference, should he be losing? It is a tricky situation, but I do think that the the whole company at the minute is playing really fast and loose. So was it, I forget when it was, but within the last month, I think Shawn Michaels has referred to the WWF title as like a piece of tin. Yeah. And then Owen Hart has referred to it as a bit of leather with a piece of tin on it. (laughs) And that's your main title that then Austin wants to go, like, all of these belts are worthless now. They're, they're, they're kind of, that for me is, is unjustifiable. Even if it means getting out of your hottest star losing? There must be another way.
3: They're, could they're, been, he could have been stripped of it.
4: Yeah. I, I mean, he could have just gone a whole hog, forced Vince to, to, to do it, and like just, like, being upset about it. Taped after this
2: episode of Raw we've just discussed, and shown the following week on the December 22nd show, which was dubbed Season's Beatings, Mm. Santa Claus would sit in the ring, expecting Sable to come out and tell him whether she'd been a good girl or a bad girl. You what? Instead of Sable, a small child would be brought to the ring to sit on his knee. Mm. The kid told Santa he wasn't the real Santa, and as old Saint Nick ordered the child out of the ring, Stone Cold Steve Austin made his way to the squared circle. After Austin decried Santa for kicking the kid out of the ring, naturally, Austin hit a stunner to Santa Claus. Why this made television, I'm not entirely sure, especially as it was acknowledged as being taped a week earlier. Mm. So they obviously planned to show it from the dock because there's commentary over it, and it sounds like live commentary. Yeah. But it's just this really odd segment of badass rebel Steve Austin coming out to stick up for a child.
3: And stunner Santa.
2: I get that, like... I get why they've done that. In, you know, when you put yourself kind of in Vince McMahon and Vince mm. Russo's head, like, stone-cold stunnering Santa is a great idea. But, but it's, <laughs> hang on, it's not Santa, it's bad Santa. Bad Santa. And that, that is a good idea. just meanwhile, is continuing his feud with Vader, with the two already scheduled for a bout at the Royal Rumble in January. On the December 8th Rory's War, the artist formerly known as Goldust would flash Vader before the latter's bout with Jeff Jarrett, who, by the way, is now gone from TV before his first repackaging of this run, causing Vader to chase after Goldust and Luna and lose the match via count-out. On the December 22nd episode, Tafka Goldust would come to the ring dressed as a Christmas tree to read The Night Before Christmas. Halfway through the reading, another Santa Claus would emerge to give toys to the fans at ringside. As Goldust read, Santa entered the ring and absolutely walloped Goldust around the back of the head with his sack before revealing that he was, in fact, Vader. It's time. It's time. It's Christmas is time.
3: His is present sack, not his ball sack.
2: <laughs> yes, his present sack, not his ball sack. That would be a whole different thing.
3: <laughs> also, logistically, way more difficult.
4: I thought this was really good.
3: Yeah, the, it's the greatest wallop...
4: Wallop is the only word, isn't
3: I, I think I've seen. They just must have put something of just the right weight in it to not kill Goldust, <laughs> but to just knock him straight off his feet.
2: Dressing Vader up as Santa Claus? Good idea, bad idea?
3: Well, you'd definitely make sure you were good that year. Yeah.
2: <laughs> Imagine if that guy
3: came down your chimney. Vader's going to come down your chimney and moonsault you if you're bad.
2: The artist, formerly known as Goldust and Luna Vashon, make their way to the ring. Goldust is dressed as the New Year's baby, wearing a nappy and bonnet,
4: carrying a rattle and a bottle. Mm. I'm pretending to drink from an empty bottle. Ridiculous. I don't know what to say about that. I've got to say, even though this this angle perhaps isn't my cup of tea, shall we say?
7: Really?
4: (laughs) I think Goldust's, or Tafka Goldust's, acting is phenomenally good here, to be perfectly honest with you. I'm not entirely sure what Luna is supposed to be dressed as
2: either.
3: She's just kind of in a sheet, isn't she?
2: Luna tells us that the artist formerly known as Golddust, Tafkag, would like to express himself as he takes the microphone. Goldust instantly goes for gay heat by speaking in the campest voice he could possibly manage. Yeah. Like, and that seems to be the subtext of this entire artist formerly known as Goldust character. Like, he's going back to that. But before... When the implication was that he was gay, it was this very sort of seductive, kind of very sultry voice that he would attempt to portray the character as. This time it's, I'm just going to go for the campest voice I can.
3: Yeah. So is he kind of this weird gimp-type character that follows round after Luna? Yeah. Now dressing in whatever she makes him and reading out Dr. Seuss books and things like that. That seems to be the case. Okey doke.
2: Goldust tells us that his Christmas present for the audience is that he is announcing himself as participating in the 1988 Royal Rumble match.
3: Did he actually say that? Not yeah. the
2: 1998, but the 1988. Yeah, he says 88. Techno team 2000. Goldust says he knows that Stone Cold Steve Austin will also be in the Royal Rumble. Goo goo gaga. But <laughs> that he is the toughest SOB in the WWF, not Austin. Uh-huh. Uh, I I, I did think, uh, I still think Goldust was really good here.
3: Difficult to say that dressed as a baby.
2: Goldust says he's going to spank Steve Austin's ass momentarily. (laughs) And after that, he has a present for Austin, which appears to be a pair of panties.
3: That he pulls out of his nappy.
2: That was weird. (laughs) Goldust says that he and Austin can play dress up. He'll be a Barbie girl and Austin can be his big Ken. (laughs) Goldust invites Austin to the ring to get it on. Austin's music hits and the crowd pops. Tony Chimmel introduces Austin as Goldust's opponent as Austin walks to the ring in jeans. Austin ascends the turbuckles to intensify his reactions but stops to stare at Goldust as he does. Austin takes the microphone and tells Goldust that he doesn't believe in New Year's resolutions and despite damn near breaking his neck in 1997, he's still there so the fingers, the language and the violence will continue into 1998. Austin says he's still the toughest SOB in the company, and as Goldust is such a big piece of trash, hang on, a big piece of crap, he's not going to wrestle Goldust. Instead, he has a present for the artist. Some kind of covered box descends from the ceiling, but Austin isn't happy with, A, how long it's taking, and B, its trajectory, so grabs the cable to bring it down quicker and drag it into the ring. Fair play to him,
4: because who set that up? (laughs) Because there's nothing that kills a segment quicker than something that descends really slowly. It almost falls over as
2: well, but it doesn't. After it gets unhooked from its cables, Austin reveals it to be a portable toilet marked Crapper 316. Hmm. Austin says four out of five construction workers he surveyed earlier in the day think that it stinks. He asks the crowd if they think it stinks, and they give him a hell yeah. As Austin carries on talking, Goldust sneaks around the ring and tries to ambush Austin from the other side of the toilet, but Austin slams the door in his face to a pop. Austin wails away on Goldust and gives him a back body drop, a clothesline and more punches. Austin shoves Goldust inside the toilet and when he emerges, Goldust receives a stunner and is quickly shoved back inside before Austin tips the toilet over. Austin stands on top of the toilet and leaves the ring as his music hits. As Austin leaves, Luna helps her man out of the toilet. This reveals that, thankfully, it's an empty toilet, as there's no water, urine or faeces anywhere. Yeah, I Uh, was fearful during this angle that it would be a lot more unsanitary than it turned out to be. A replay shows Austin whacking the door in Goldust's face and giving him the stunner.
3: It's a good job that it was clean, because otherwise you'd just cover your ring in faeces.
4: I really kind of worried about that. About where that was going. But I I did find a lot of the commentary very cringy here. They wanted to come up with lots of different terms for portable toilet.
2: They they just settle on saying the word Portage on about 28
4: times. Which is rubbish.
2: Regardless of how you feel about it, and for the record I actually found it relatively entertaining, it continues a trend that's becoming rather frequent on Raw as of late. Advertising Steve Austin for matches that never happen. Mm. So... As I mentioned earlier, about with The Rock never ended up happening. Prior to that, one with Ahmed never went ahead. And now this. That said, I don't think audiences are necessarily cottoning on to this, nor are they especially upset. No. So long as Austin comes out, hits his catchphrases, and beats someone up, that's as good as him having a match, right? Yeah.
3: Well, yeah, and I guess they're trying to keep him rested. Yeah. yeah. Um, because he's still not in that good a shape. But as long as he keeps on doing this, as long as he stays visible, and like you say, as long as he does the right things, people are quite happy with like, some, some bad language, some obscene hand gestures and a stunner. And that seems to be enough to, to make sure that he stays within the consciousness. He's seen as being strong, he's seen as beating people up, but he doesn't have to go through the rigours of a match.
4: Uh, th- this angle wasn't really necessarily, I think, designed for me. But I, <laughs> but I thought, actually, in terms of booking sense, it was excellent. Like you say, I think it protects Austin really well. And, you know, yeah, I'm not sure what's going on with Goldus, but I think his acting there was very good. And I thought, yeah, good good, good way to get a reaction for Austin and, and keep him up there. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm trying to think back now.
2: Like when Austin says, I'm not going to wrestle you, no one boos him. no. Like, in theory, like, a guy who's scheduled for a match and continually just says, as he did with The Rock, no, I just I
4: can't be bothered to wrestle you. Like, that should get him heat, but it just doesn't. Is like, the implication that I'm not going to wrestle you, but I'll kind of fight you? Yeah, and I think Is that that's...
2: implicit? Yeah, though? yeah. So, although they're not going to get a match from him, they are going to get some kind of physical altercation that invariably ends up with him coming out on top, and that's what the audience wants. Yeah. yeah. Like like you say, they want to see him flip the bird, say some bad language, hit the stunner, and pose on the turnbuckles while his music plays. And yeah. that's what they get out of this segment. As for Goldust, well, you got the idea at Degeneration X in your house that they're having another go at pushing the envelope, as Vince might phrase it. He doesn't seem to be getting the same kind of heat as when he joined the promotion.
3: No. Well, it's a very different place now, isn't it? Yeah. When he first came in. There's, like there's he... lots of odd things happening. There wasn't that. He was the oddest thing on yeah, the menu. Yeah, And now there there are strange things going on. And perhaps he's just not as extreme as he was, even though looking at it, it is fairly extreme.
4: I think it is extreme, but it's, it's when you move the boundaries, the, the boundaries of the extremities have got to go so much further to, to appear as yeah. extreme. Uh, do you think
2: it's one of those things where the audience don't know quite how to react?
4: Uh, yeah, I think so.
2: Like, he's obviously a heel, like, yeah, there's no I think, I kind think, of arguing that. I
3: think they're pretty sure they're supposed to boo him, but what they're booing him for, I think they're aware of.
4: Other than just being a weirdo. Uh, I mean, for, for me, it's just kind of like, is it got to the stage where they're just going to be curious now as to what he's going to come out in next week? Yeah, possibly, but I don't know as if there's that anticipation
2: for it. Like, you know he's going to, but I don't know as if anyone's actually clamouring for, oh my God, what's Goldust going to come out as next week? Yeah, good point. So, because this show isn't predominantly based around wrestling, it's kind of hard for us to talk about bar one match, kind of the overall quality of them. So, as we're kind of covering it segment by segment, I thought we'd kind of try something a bit different this time. So, for each of these segments as we go through, I figured we could give them a thumbs up, a thumbs in the middle, or a thumbs down each, just so we've kind of all got a a good gauge of how we're feeling about the show as we go on. Okay. Okay. Does that sound like a plan? Yep. So, Austin Goldust segment. Thumbs up, thumbs in the middle, or thumbs down?
3: I'm going to go for the middle on this one. I don't think it was stellar, really. It's good at putting Austin over, but I don't really know what it's doing for for Goldust. In fact, the, the artist formerly you known as Goldust is just very confusing to me. I don't know what's going on. Luna's got a mullet. I quite like that. <laughs> so for, you know, for that sort of thing, I'll give it like a, a middling sort of rating. It wasn't bad, but... Half of it kind of confused me.
4: My thumb is firmly in the middle, however, I will acknowledge I think it was in many ways quite good, quite well booked. I guess I'm going to be the only one then going with thumbs up. Like
2: the audience seemed okay with it, so I guess kind of I'm okay with it in the sense that, yeah, they wanted Austin to come out, talk some trash to someone, and hit a stutter, and yeah, that's what they got. Yeah. And even interacting with such a bizarre character as Goldust didn't seem to damage Austin's reaction in the segment in any way, so. Yeah, as weird as it was, I think I'll go with thumbs up. Mm. Fair enough. As Michael Cole resets the show, the announcers speculate about the contents of a wooden box on the stage and what might be
4: inside it. What's in Vince's box? Is it another portable toilet? Could be.
3: Do you think that portable toilet stunt was quite expensive?
4: No, not... No. It really. can't cost that much to hire for for a day.
3: Then rig up in the ceiling and safely lower.
2: It's kind of weird, don't you think, that they'd have a mystery box angle right after another mystery box box angle. (laughs) Like, that's weird.
3: But this is basically a budget version of the Yeti, isn't it? It's not a a big ice cube that someone comes out of. It's it's like a chipboard box.
2: Yeah. (laughs) Kevin Kelly plugs Mankind facing Road Dog later in the broadcast, and Michael Cole makes reference to eight WWF superstars plotting against Kane... (gasps) Triple H and Owen Hart is referenced again. And JR tells us that later in the broadcast, we'll find out what's going on with the WWF and Mike Tyson.
3: The baddest man on the planet. Now,
2: these are two things, kind of, and we won't mention it every time it comes up, but they kind of relentlessly hype throughout the broadcast. A, you're going to find out what's going on between the WWF and Mike Tyson. And B, once in Vince's box, like... They continually, almost at the end of every segment and the start of the following one, it's always coming up later, the box
4: and Mike Tyson. Well, we've got that coming up later as well. We've got a a mystery box here and we'll be finding out later on what's in the mystery box.
3: We've not got Mike Tyson.
4: No, we've not got Mike Tyson, but we've got Adam. Our opening contest is a six-man
2: tag match pitting Chains, Skull and 8-Ball against Savio Vega, Miguel Perez... And Jesus Castillo. Uh,
3: You're right. Adam? This has been going on forever. Every time we've looked at a WWF show in like the last three years, <laughs> has involved this pair of groups.
4: What episode did they first crop up on? It is something like late May, early June, something like that. Uh, I mean, it's it's nice though that um, there's a new character in the barreque this time. Well, Los Barqueros wrap their way to the ring,
2: which is still a thing, apparently. The upcoming bout will be a Long Island brawl. Woo!
4: So yeah, they've got they've got a new member, Ali G. Ali G. Ali G. is is in the Los Barqueros now. Yes, it, Paul made me watch
2: this early before we started recording. You were out the room. If you pause the show in a particular way, when Miguel Perez is wrapping his way to the ring, he does look like a hairy version of Ali G. <laughs> mm. Okay, Miggy P. I don't know. There you go. They get precisely zero reaction. Michael Cole throws the highlights of the Bariquas... Uh, highlights. What well, am I saying? <laughs> brawling with the DOA on the July Fourteenth Raw. Yeah,
3: it's the one where they drag away one of the Bikes, motorcycles, yeah. isn't it?
2: Well, it reminds us how fucking long this feud has been going on
3: for exactly no mm. good matches. Mm.
2: I'm all for long-term storytelling in wrestling. I really am, but not this. Mm.
4: It's, it's interesting though because they come out rapping, and I always think, oh, you know, everybody looks strong when they sing a song.
3: <laughs> really, the... I, I put the, the you know, the, the kind of the B team of the bariquas. Yeah, are the ones that hold the melodies. So I reckon they're the A team of the singers.
2: If if the bariquas were some sort of barbershop quartet,
3: yes, yeah, made up of sight workers.
2: The DOA ride their motorbikes to the ring, past a sign that says, we want midgets. Mm. The Bariquas dive out of the ring onto the DOA before the match begins. Chains and Savio head into the ring as the announcers discuss Crush being eliminated by Kane and the DOA being part of the conspiracy against The Undertaker's younger brother, Kane. All six men fight in the ring, so it's pretty difficult to describe what's going on and quite frankly, I can't be asked. And And also at this point, why
4: isn't the other one getting involved, the the last Bariqua? Fair's fair, mate.
2: Fairness okay. is,
3: it can't be like a handicap match. Now, I didn't really pay much attention to what was going on here because I didn't want to watch it, so I looked at some of the signs. Mm. And I saw a couple of signs that took my fancy. One that just says, stab him. Stab him. him. I, I picked that out also. And another that says, Tony O'Connor has a micro-pecker.
2: Yes, I've got that <laughs> ring now. <laughs>
3: Which is such a... Odd sign to see. Who's, I,
2: who's he? I had it as Tim O'Connor, but
4: yeah, it's one of the two. Yeah. <laughs> so is that just somebody's mate? <laughs>
2: Presumably. Probably,
3: yeah. And it would like us going to Raw and taking a sign that says, Scribbins has got a micro pecker.
4: Don't. <laughs> no, we took a sign that said Steph McGovern.
3: Yeah. Dude. Baron Jeremy
4: Corbyn. That would be a particularly you know good time to get that in. Hogan Fears, Austin Powers was another sign. as <laughs> But did you spot, as
2: soon as the Tim O'Connor or Tony O'Connor has a micro-pecker sign makes the screen, someone comes and takes it away? I guess Ooh. they
3: want people to express themselves through their signs, but not if it's about micro-peckers.
4: Evidently not. Or, or maybe that was the guy's name who came and took it away. Possibly.
2: Tony O'Connor
4: took it off. <laughs> just, just happened
2: to be there. <laughs> <laughs> Jose Estrada and the Bariqua, were not in the match, just starts getting involved, and referee Mike Chioda does nothing about it. Mm. I don't know whether that's because, A, he doesn't notice, B, it's no DQ, or C, he just doesn't care.
3: Yeah. Like prob- any prob- one of the three. Maybe all three.
4: So note here, Mrs Scrivens came back in the room briefly while this match was going on. She... she mention the words vile and queasy
3: is it about miguel <laughs> perez's back
4: it was <laughs> blessing which i felt very sorry for him did you inform her that he is the best bariqua
3: no he could do a fierce and flipping leg drop
4: yeah i felt a bit sorry because i thought that was harsh i mean it's perhaps not even the hairiest back on this show no perhaps not
3: <laughs> oh yeah
4: Kevin Kelly tells us it's a lack
2: of institutional control, something the WWF really needs to tighten up on.
3: (laughs) Yep, yep, that's that's right.
2: Sound point, like it, (laughs) yep. Jose takes Chains over so that Savio can kick him, but the one thing they didn't want to happen happens, Mm. and Savio kicks Jose when Chains ducks. Mm. That was bad. Chains then covers Jose for the three count at three minutes and 17 seconds to no reaction. JR tells us that this rivalry between these two factions is far from over. Oh. Uh, just what you wanted to hear. Another absolute classic from these teams, as you'd expect. <laughs> Let's move on. Thumbs down. thumbs down. Thumbs down. Thumbs down. Thumbs down. Well hang on, I need to ask you first. Thumbs up, thumbs in the middle, or thumbs down. I Th- just want you to be clear on the options. Thumbs down.
4: Well well it, it it's wavering downwards.
3: <laughs> yeah. Th- this did nothing. This did absolutely nothing. These two have been going at it for months and no one gives a shit. Thumbs down. Yes, thumbs down.
2: Would you like some good news?
3: Please. Oh, is is it over?
2: No. It's only in front of the four months yet. This is the last Disciples of Apocalypse versus Los Bariquas match that we ever, and I mean ever, have to watch.
4: Yeah! But no, the next time, it's got Nation of Domination in as well whilst
2: these factions will continue to face each other endlessly on the house show circuit, and they will have a couple more bouts on Shotgun Saturday night, their next Raw match doesn't occur until after our timeline ends. (laughs) So finally... It's still going, even after our timeline ends. I I don't necessarily think the feud's still going, but they have a match on a random episode of Raw, and it's like April time. So yeah,
3: it's over. (sighs) Yeah, it feels like it's been a long time, because it has been a long time.
2: As we return from break, instead of The Undertaker being in the ring, as was promised, Triple H and China are there, the former on crutches, sporting a knee brace. Helmsley informs his legion of fans around the world that he will be unable to defend his coveted European title tonight after dislocating his kneecap the previous evening.
3: So is he kind of trash in it as well?
2: I think he is. Owen Hart will just have to wait. For the record, Helmsley's knee injury is legit and he'll miss around six weeks of in-ring time. It's really? just convenient that it happened a night before he was booked to lose
3: the belt to Owen Hart.
4: Ah, Genuinely legit?
3: Yeah. Wow. Did... Some timing, that is. Did he deliberately injure himself so he didn't have to lose it? <laughs> if, so I was...
4: if I was going to injure myself, I wouldn't dislocate my kneecap later.
2: <laughs> Turning his attention to The Undertaker, Helmsley says that Shawn Michaels isn't here this evening so Taker will have to wait until the Royal Rumble to rest in pieces. The Undertaker's music hits, and Hopalong Helmsley, as JR calls him, (laughs) briefly sells being afraid. A number of druids wheel out a casket to ringside as the announcers plug Taker and Michaels facing off in a casket match. When the casket is placed next to the ring, Triple H says he can't defend himself, so there's only one thing
4: left to do. Break it down. Hang on, this... Casket looks double wide and double deep to me. Do you think they've reused it?
3: It's Yokozuna's.
4: I think it is just spray painted. They've they? rebadged it, you fool. Yeah, but <laughs> did you know the kind of druids struggle to kind of contain it going down the ramp? Yes, to stop they did it going spot do, too fast, and they also look like like a poor man's druid, really, don't they? <laughs> They're not. The, <laughs> they've got like cheap druid outfits. They're not.
3: They've got dressing gowns.
4: they were fooling no one. The DX theme hits and a smug Shawn Michaels
2: emerges from the casket, dancing on the ropes like a twat, holding his WWF title. Kevin Kelly says Michaels has desecrated the memory of the casket. Not sure what memory the casket has. Michael's says DX would like to bring in the new year in style, but if it were up to the World Wrestling Federation, they would have had the heartbreak kid roll out to the ring in a casket with two skanks. But as he only dates the <laughs> finest women, he'd rather come out here alone. Presumably, this is a dig at Bret Hart emerging the previous week on Nitro on the NWO limo with two women. Uh,
3: uh, yeah, oh, probably. yeah, probably. I have no I, idea I, what that would about. Yeah, was I did about. wonder where he was going with that.
2: Michaels says that what he would like to do is introduce... The two newest members of D Generation X.
3: Now, I'll tell you what. When I was watching this, I actually thought that <laughs> it was going to bring up Rodog and Billy. Yeah, I thought it was
4: <laughs> going to be the new eight. I did. I thought it was going to be the new eight. It <laughs> well, turns out not to be them. The announcers make it
2: out to be a big deal, major announcement, until they work out that Michaels means China's new tits.
3: And my first note on this segment actually does say, is China got new knockers," and thankfully, uh, Shaw Michaels told me that she had.
2: Michaels and Helmsley stare at China's boobs and make jokes. With Helmsley claiming that they may have to change their name to Double D Generation X. They should have done that. Kevin Kelly says that they have somewhat of a degrading attitude. Somewhat.
4: The thing is, though, this is the first time I've seen China smile. Yes. So literally, they're staring at her chest area and, you know, she, she's smiling away. Like, she, she's genuinely quite happy about it all despite this being like one of the creepiest things i've ever seen
3: <laughs> maybe that's what women want i uh, know i don't think it is i don't think it is i'll ask but i don't think it is uh, next time i see mrs scribbins i'll say something similar and we'll see if she smiles okay all right
4: michael's
2: turns his attention to owen hart saying that owen is lucky triple h is injured but when he isn't he'll rid the wwf of owen Michaels then says at the Royal Rumble, he'll give The Undertaker a third and final chance at the WWF title, even though he wasn't the champion the last two times they faced. The cameraman, I noticed, takes a number of opportunities to focus on China's breasts. Presumably, you know, Michaels and Helmsley have given the okay that even when Sean is talking, you can just zoom in on her cleavage. Mm. Yeah. Michaels says that 1998 will be the year of DX and absolutely nobody will crash their party. As their music hits, Commissioner Slaughter crashes their party. Michaels claims he's a horny old man who's come to look at China's new breasts, and Helmsley mocks Slaughter, <laughs> Slaughter for having eaten too much Christmas dinner. Nothing wrong with
4: eating too much Christmas dinner. I don't know that's what it was there for. You know, they talk about like Christmas pudding's like give me Christmas pudding. I'll eat it. More here, please. Come on.
3: Commissioner Scrivens.
4: Bring it on. (laughs) Bring on the Christmas pudding, DX. Watch me eat it. Slaughter no-sells it all and says that although
2: Helmsley isn't able to wrestle tonight, Michaels looks in perfect condition, so Slaughter is ordering him to defend his WWF title against Owen Hart here tonight. The crowd pops for it. Slaughter wishes the trio a happy new year and leaves the ring as we head to commercial break. Good move.
3: Yeah, well done, Sergeant Slaughter. I quite liked it. Sometimes I quite liked Sean jumping out the casket. I thought it was suitably wankerish. Uh, some of his mic work was pretty good. I like Slaughter's involvement in the whole thing. Yeah. I well, thought overall it was, it was okay. I
4: thought it was very obvious that it was going to be Sean in the casket due to the kind of mock fear of, of Triple H. Yeah. Who, by the way, is looking really young.
3: Did you pick up on that? Do you think he's getting younger than when yeah. we first saw
4: him? I think kind of like the changes, his hair looks a little he's, sleeker. He's cultivated a woman's hair. There is a funny
2: moment a couple of weeks prior to this when Helmsley and Michaels are going to face the LOD, and I think it's Hawk refers to them as Michael Bolton and Fabio. <laughs>
4: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Very accurate. So, do, do that part to it. Now, I don't know if, if I've got this wrong, but was it me, or was it... Was Shawn Michaels pyro set up, but didn't go off?
2: I didn't spot it, but then I wasn't looking
4: for it. Because there was definitely kind of pyro things there in the background. And he did his posing, and I thought, he's going to get pyro after coming out in a casket. How ridiculous that. <laughs> and then there was nothing.
2: What do you make of the discussion of, of China's recent surgery?
3: It doesn't offend me.
2: Well, I know that. I was asking him.
3: Oh, okay.
4: It doesn't offend me, but it, the, the bit that I didn't like was just how creepy they were with it. Because if they, if they, like, they want to say, okay, look, she's, she's had this change, that she's had this surgery. Because to some extent, you might as well be open about it if, if, there's a, if there's an obvious change. Rather than people going, oh, look, she's had a boob job. You might as well kind of be open to it. But like the way they do it is just so horrible. I found it a bit uncomfortable. I did find it a bit uncomfortable. And that's not just me just going "Uh, like that. (laughs) How long did she have off
3: TV to have it
4: done? I don't think she is off TV.
2: Holy shit. I think she was on the week before. But to be fair, actually, they tape two or three roars like in the two or three nights after DX. So in kind of real time, there's probably about the better part of three weeks between the last time she was filmed to be on TV and this live show. That's probably all right. Thumbs up, thumbs in the middle, thumbs down. I'd give it an up. I'd probably keep it mid. Yeah, I'm going with middle on this one. Fair enough. Up next is Ken Shamrock versus Karma. After losing his WWF title shot at Shawn Michaels at D-Generation X in your house, Ken Shamrock took a couple of weeks off television, bar a short promo the night after, where he refined his interview style to include short bursts of shouting. It was a heck of a lot better than his (laughs) charisma-laden, clean interviews anyway. Ken reappeared on the December 22nd episode of Rora's War, taking on the Nation of Domination's D'Lo Brown. After picking up a quick win via ankle lock, Karma Mustafa and Farouk appeared primed to enter the ring and attack Shamrock until The Rock appeared in the aisleway with a microphone. After claiming that the UFC was full of has-beens and never is like Shamrock, The Rock said he was a compassionate man and offered Shamrock a special Christmas gift, a bout at the 1998 Royal Rumble for The Rock's undisputed intercontinental title. Rock then ordered a reluctant Farouk and Karma Mustafa not to assault Shamrock and leave the arena with him. The Nation of Domination trio of D'Lo Brown, Karma, Mustafa and Farouk make their way to the ring as we see highlights of Ken Shamrock beating Delo Brown the previous week. Shamrock makes his way to the ring to a modest reaction that gets better as he progresses to the squared circle. Mm. Jim Ross plugs that Shamrock will face the Rock for the Intercontinental title at the Royal Rumble and declares that tonight will be Owen Hart's night to capture the WWF title. Shamrock rings Karma's arm and Fireman's carries him to the mat. A lockup and Shamrock takes Karma down once again. Karma looks for a hip toss, but Shamrock takes Karma down with a leg bar. Shamrock hits an arm drag and applies a side headlock, but Delo trips Shamrock off the ropes and Karma takes the advantage. Shamrock looks for a cross body, but Karma hits a backbreaker and taunts the crowd to booze. Ross claims that Shamrock may be the greatest UFC champion of all time, but some may think it was Dan the Beast Severin. Is mm. he coming soon? Well, negotiations have started. Okay. Mm. Might be why his name's brought up. Karma whips Shamrock hard across the ring and looks for a charge in the corner, but Shamrock moves. Shamrock tries a charge in the corner, but gets caught with a knee. Karma hits a big kick and covers for a two count, but Shamrock kicks out. Karma tries for another kick, but Shamrock holds onto the ropes and clotheslines Karma around the head. Mm. Like, not sort of neck or upper chest area, around the head. Shamrock hits a back elbow and a drop kick for a two-count. It should be noted, by the way, that none of this is getting any kind of reaction. Mm. Like wrestling, not interested.
3: Yeah, which is weird because people generally quite like Shamrock.
2: As Shamrock pounds away on Karma, Farouk and D-Lo get up on the apron, allowing Karma to take the advantage. As the official deals with Farouk, D'Lo holds Ken for a kick from Karma. But Ken escapes, and the one thing they didn't want to happen happens... (laughs) Isn't this the exact same spot from the opener? Mm. That said, this finally gets a reaction. Shamrock takes Karma down with an armbar and quickly transitions
4: to the ankle lock, with Karma tapping out at 3.36 to a pop. I thought this match was okay at the start while Ken's on offense, but Karma's offense is dreary, isn't it?
3: Yeah. He has no offense.
4: He has
2: that kind of back kick that he does that's okay.
3: Yeah, yeah, that's about but it. But there's not an awful lot there. Was he any better as Papa Shango?
2: He set people's feet on fire. Yeah, yeah. And
3: made black ooze come out of people's heads. Uh, if he did more of that...
8: Hold on, let's put the damage on hold for a second. Because the People's Champ has got something to say. You know, first and foremost... The Rock has received a lot of fan mail and a lot of phone calls, and all The Rock's fans would like to know exactly how The Rock feels about the elderly and Social Security. Well, The Rock's had a lot of time to ponder this question, especially during the holidays, so The Rock feels like this. As long as The Rock's pockets align with green, he doesn't give a damn about those old goats and Social Security really is important. But what is important is that The Rock, the best damn Intercontinental Champion there ever was.
0: Maybe not for long.
8: Make one thing perfectly clear to you, Shen- Ken Shamrock. And that is this. You know, last week, The Rock thought that you were kind of lucky with a name like Shamrock. But this week, especially after tonight, I know you're damn sure lucky as hell. So in front of millions and millions of people and all The Rock's fans on TV watching live, The Rock's feeling good and he's damn sure looking good. Let me make one point perfectly clear to you is that next week, this little luck streak you got going on is gonna run out because next week, Ken Shamrock, you will come face to face with none other than the leader of the nation of domination, Farouk.
0: Look at Farouk's face.
8: So Kenny, according to the Rock's Rolex, you've got exactly seven days before you get your bad ass kicked. Commodillo, know your role. Farouk,
5: let's go.
2: As Farouk and Dilo get ready to beat Ken down, The Rock emerges and tells the pair to calm down. The People's Champion has got something to say. Apparently, all The Rock's fans would like to know how he feels about the elderly and social security, but says, as long as his pockets are lined with green, he doesn't give a damn about those old goats. Hmm. Theresa May feels the same way. (laughs) (laughs) Let's not get political. The Rock says what's important is making it perfectly clear to Ken Shamrock that he has been lucky as hell the past two weeks. Rock says he's been feeling good and looking good and that next week Shamrock's streak will end because next week he's going to face Farouk. Mm. Ken is okay with this, but
4: Farouk seems a bit miffed.
3: Farouk's pissed off face is great.
4: I think this is a really good, very interesting bit of storytelling here, this kind of dissension for the leadership of the Nation of Domination. This, I think, is really very well done. Rock tells
2: Karma and D'Lo to know their roles and says to Farouk it's time to go. The camera focuses on Farouk's face as the segment ends. It's a good face.
0: Yeah.
2: So the match itself, yeah, was pretty much a nothing bout, just designed to get Ken over another member of the Nation of Domination. But the clear highlight for me of the entire segment is how self-assured, confident, and full of poise the Rock now is. Yeah.
3: Yeah. He's a very, very different person, isn't he?
2: Is it the first time he says, know your role? It's the first time I can recall hearing it. Mm. Yeah. We've seen all of this growth kind of in the last few months, but this really felt like The Rock. You know, we're not catchphrase heavy rock, but we're starting to see that kind of cockiness. There are sort of minor catchphrases creeping in, you know, referring to himself as the people's champion this kind of arrogant this you know, my fans want to hear what I think about this. Like I really like that aspect
3: of his heel character, like it's getting there. All the rock's catchphrases are kind of born out of these trial and error, yeah. Type things. I definitely remember seeing an interview with The Rock must be early ninety eight on something on like a pay per view, where he, he keeps saying, If you smoke what the rock is cooking and he just says it in a very matter of fact way. You think how that started in that sort of manner turned into what it ended up mm. yeah as is is really interesting to see.
4: And and it also kind of stemmed from that there was that other one where it says what well, can you taste what the rock is cooking mm. and can you hear what the rock is saying <laughs> and and can you feel the rock?
3: Can you feel what the rock is touching. Yeah. <laughs> um, you definitely should have said that.
4: Can you see what the rock is seeing, I don't know.
2: But yeah, like the 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 know your roles thing here is very minor, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, it's just exactly. like Karma, D Lo, know your roles, let's go. But it sounds cool, though, still. It still yeah, sounds cool. it does. He doesn't particularly have the heat he normally has, but I think that might just be this crowd. He's super over as a heel most yeah. weeks, particularly yeah. the previous couple of weeks when he was opposite Austin-like people were nuclear for him. Given promos like this one, it's kind of easy to see why crowds started reacting to him and why he gets so over as 1998 rolls on. Karma mm-hmm. versus Ken Shamrock on The Rock promo, then. Thumbs up, thumbs in the middle, or
3: thumbs down. Well, it's heading for a massive down actually until the rock comes out, where it goes to an up.
4: I, I would have said I, I'd have probably had it in the middle of the match, although I, I, I was more positive about the start of the match and Ken's offense. But the rock's great, thumbs up. Yeah, absolute thumbs up.
2: Yeah, the match itself, you're right, is kind of just there. But yeah, the rock's promo after is pr- pretty damn good, um, probably one of the the best ones he's done so far.
3: Yeah, and I like Paul's point as well about the the kind of the dissension within. Yeah, the nations that's... like really, really, and it's really cleverly done. Yeah, as well. So he he comes out and stops it as kind of like the boss, might and then says you're going to face the leader of the nation mm. of domination, Farouk. Yeah, and then immediately switches to you two lackeys, this way, come on, let's go. But it... so he just he flips around from yeah, this guy's the boss, but really I'm the boss.
4: Yeah, but it, I I do like the fact that you've got the the short and the long term balance of the storyline there. So you've got the the short term with Shamrock, and you have got the longer term with Farouk. Yeah, yeah.
2: like those two kind of have a really good chemistry. Like in terms of, yeah, the Rock being this kind of very arrogant upstart guy, and yeah, you're right. Like Farouk's pissed off face,
4: like what did you just say? Like face Mm. is really good, and and it's also it kind of plays out a few different things because it almost shows a level of professionalism from Farouk in that his character's leader isn't going to have that argument with the Rock there. But you can imagine as soon as he gets through the curtain, like if this was kind of still within storyline is gonna tear him a new one.
3: Yeah. And what a better person to work with than Ahmed. Because that's who like the majority of Farouk's time is spent in this endless like run through with Mm. Ahmed Johnson where the whole tone of it was constantly seemed to be built around race. Yeah. Things. But this is a much nicer storyline to work with. It's got much more depth and potential.
5: In a very short while, every single one of these empty seats that you now see will be filled with the most wonderful, the most exuberant people in the world, World Wrestling Federation fans. As we reflect back on this past year of 1997, we'd like to thank all of you for the wonderful moments that we have shared together. And we promise you and make a commitment to you that 1998 will be the most action-packed, the most enjoyable year ever here in the World Wrestling Federation. As the old expression goes, you ain't seen nothing yet. Happy New Year.
2: Vince McMahon sits in an empty arena and says that late tonight, the seats will be filled with the most wonderful, most exuberant fans in the world, World Wrestling Federation fans.
3: He might change that opinion in years to come.
2: As Vince reflects back on 1997, he'd like to thank all of them for the wonderful moments they've shared together over the year, but that 1998 will be the most action-packed, enjoyable year in the WWF. You ain't seen nothing yet. Happy New Year, closes McMahon.
3: Yeah, quite like this. Thanks thanks for what you've done. Next year's going to be really good. But, yeah, I do think that it's interesting his, like, you know, pouring to the crowd. Like, crowd, you're the best. I love you. And then, obviously, we've seen down the line where he comes out and just has a go at the crowd for not doing what he wants. I, I, he will change that opinion.
4: I, I think there's nothing wrong with what he's doing here. It's sickening in, in terms of its lack of sincerity. Again, um, but it worked. Like 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 it is. Like I genuinely think it's like really kind of cr- just cringy to watch. But it works for me. It works. Mm actually
2: but is he still positioning himself as a baby face coming out and kind of saying you guys
3: like you're so good i think paul's right he's still positioning himself as a, as a sleazy salesman
4: yeah but he
3: does he think he's the baby face i think he thinks he's i think he's he thinks he's a good guy in these sorts of things
4: and you know what To to, to some semblance of sanity he's he's probably you know if that's what he thinks he's doing the right thing because you know If you tell people what's thinking of, it's surprising how much they believe it, I think. So the popular kind of
2: WWE narrative (laughs) is that Vince screws Brett and then goes, aha, Mr. McMahon, heel character, opposite Austin.
3: But it's not quite that It's not quite
2: that. Like, that will occur towards the end of January. I'm, I'm not saying it doesn't, but there's kind of this six to eight week period in the middle where he does the interview with jim ross where he does the promo we talked about earlier where he does this where they like this doesn't even feel like he's going slightly too far and trying to be annoying like you may say he's a sleazy salesman etc like it doesn't feel that kind of like the rock does where he thinks he's a face but he's a heel mm. kind of thing like this still feels like no no i'm the good guy guys honest like thanks for coming this year next year'll be great
3: but it doesn't last
2: no, because he cottons on that the money is elsewhere.
4: Is it that he cottons on that or do you think he's got an imbalance of faces and heels? No, I Obviously, think he cottons yeah. onto it. Because there is a segment a couple
2: of weeks prior that I mentioned earlier where Austin knocks him off the apron and he gets kind of helped up by Patson and Briscoe and stuff. And like that feels in retrospect, along with the roar in September we saw, like, you know, like moving in that kind of direction where he finally lashes back against Austin which comes as a result of a segment that we'll talk about, you know, another show. But yeah, it just still feels like yeah, I'm the good guy. You guys realize that, right? I bring you the WWF. Thanks for coming. <laughs> Up next is Taka Michinoku and a mystery partner against Brian Christopher and Jerry the King Lawler. After capturing the WWF Light Heavyweight Championship at D Generation X in your house the following night on the December 8th Raw is War inaugural champion Taka Michinoku was interviewed in the ring by Jim Cornette. It was revealed that Jim Ross has been teaching Taka such useful English phrases as slobber knocker and, well, nothing else. Mm. Like, that's all they showed. Cornette then planned to introduce Taka's first challenger, but was instead interrupted by Jerry the King Lawler. After some casual racism from the King, Taka revealed he had learned two other English words for Lawler, you jackass. (laughs) As Lawler prepared to fight Tacker, the new challenger made his way to the ring, El Unico, a masked luchador supposedly from Mexico. After some more racism from UKIP leadership candidate Jerry Lawler, Unico shoved the king to the floor and seemed primed to fight Jerry with Tacker until he tore off his mask to reveal Brian Christopher. Oh. Father and son then assaulted Tacker with spike pile drivers before officials and referees pried them off. The following week, on the December 15th Raw, Jerry the King Lawler would be scheduled for a match with WWF light heavyweight champion, Taka, with announcer Michael Cole helpfully pointing out that this would not be a light heavyweight match. Taka would be on the verge of picking up the win, following a Michinoku driver to Lawler, before Brian Christopher interfered as Taka made the pin. Taka would manage to fend off a post-match assault from the Lawler family, with Christopher decking the King in the face by accident. Mm. What do you make to this as kind of Taker's first feud. And I know we talked about Taker and Christopher, but like having him feud with Lawler, is it a bit like if WCW bought Rey Mysterio in in mid-1996 and had him feud with Nick Bockwinkle?
3: A little bit, yes. He should be having good high-flying matches against good opponents because I'm not sure what this is doing for him as a wrestler. This is kind of probably out of his comfort zone.
4: Do you think that what might be going on is they don't quite trust Brian Christopher to carry his end of the bargain on his own just yet, so they're kind of lump King in there with him just to kind of add a bit of gravitas? I,
2: I think it's more to do with kind of, no, the light heavyweight division isn't going to be a thing, you're just going to be like everyone else. Mm. Like, it's almost like this defining down type thing, whereas... You know, kind of early on, WCW defined it up in that you would just have, yeah... they You know, the guys in the Cruiserweight division didn't randomly face, you know, Scott Hall. They do latterly, but very early on, like, you wouldn't see Ray just have a random match with, like, Kevin Nash or something. They were kind
3: of in their own They were division. kind
2: of in their own division, and they just yeah. did their own thing. And like I say, ultimately, the, the, they kind of amalgamate with everything else. But this, it's very much like, yeah, tack a new light like heavyweight champion and you can feud with brian christopher you know that's fine we discussed that you guys are kind of okay with that i'm less keen but still kind of okay with it but yeah it kind of turns into this comedy feud with christopher and his dad against taka and yeah it's almost like a defining damn because there is no division outside of taka michinoku yeah
3: yeah and you can't be a division on your own hold it hold it let me make a little announcement
6: here can you believe Brian Christopher that we have come out here to wrestle Takamichi Noku and a mystery partner we don't even know who we're going to wrestle but you know what we don't even care who it is so a lot of questions are going to be answered and one question I know is on everybody's mind they want to know who Brian Christopher's real father is and over the holidays he told me it's none other than Jim Ross now on from now on refer to him as good old B.C.
2: As we return to the arena, Jerry the King Lawler and Too Sexy Brian Christopher are in the ring. Lawler says he has the answer to the question that is on everyone's mind. Who is Brian Christopher's real father? Lawler says that he's found out who it is. It's Jim Ross. And from now on, Too Sexy <laughs> needs to be referred to as good old BC. Oh, I actually thought this was pretty funny.
3: Yeah, that's quite abusive.
2: Ross looks in impressed. Tucker makes his way to the ring, carrying his swish-light heavyweight title belt, as we see highlights of the Lawler family attacking Michinoku. Tony Chimmel introduces the mystery partner. It's WWF Hall of Famer, George the Animal Steel, which pops the crowd. He is so hairy. He actually looks like he's wearing a jumper. The Lawler sell fear as Steele chases them around the ring. Steel removes his jersey, yes, which makes Miguel Perez look positively naked before he begins eating the turnbuckle pad and showering its contents
4: everywhere. right? Do you think this didn't look like the coolest thing ever, though?
3: (laughs) Because it involves one eating part of a wrestling ring?
4: Well, not that, but just just like I thought the effect, just like how it goes straight out, it was like like snow, wasn't it? I thought it looked really good.
3: I'm not really familiar with George the Animal Steel. Yeah. I think he was a thing before I started watching it. Correct. Is this what he did? Yes. He would just eat turnbuckle pads and be hairy yeah that was his thing okay okay (laughs) but but so bizarrely popular
2: Yeah. yeah certainly in this area and and there's all sorts of stories about kind of how i can't remember exactly where it was it might even be long island then where like he was a like high school gym teacher and like no one in the school he worked at like knew he was a wrestler because he would go off kind of outside of term time and be this kind of mad animalistic character and then just the rest of his time, he'd just go back to being like a high school sports teacher or something. Wow. So,
3: and without the internet, really, to yeah. popularise that around. Yeah. Like, I guess no one ever knew. Yeah. They right. just thought it was that hairy old gym teacher.
2: That's really interesting. JR wonders how Tacker and the animal will communicate as the Lawlers attack Tacker from behind. Tacker and Christopher start as JR tells us that a light heavyweight title rematch between the pair has been signed, but he doesn't really say when or where or what. Hmm. Christopher hits a nice overhead suplex and a big back body drop before strutting across the ring and laughing at Steel on the apron. Lawler tries to shield himself from Burger King chants in his corner. He just stands there with his hands over his ears. <laughs> Christopher whips Tacker into the corner and charges, but Tacker leaps backwards over him. Tacker looks for a Hurricane runner, but Christopher drops him in a nice sit out powerbomb, which the crowd reacts for. Yeah, that's cool. Mm. Christopher goes for a suplex, but Taka slides out and hits a spinning heel kick. Taka hits a scoop slam and goes to the top rope, hitting a moonsault. Taka goes for the cover, but for some reason, George Steele gets in the ring, distracting the referee and allowing Lawler to produce something from his tights and whack Taka around the back of the head with it. Christopher hits a scoop slam and Lawler seemingly goes to the top rope for a moonsault, but before he can hit it... The animal enters the ring and hits Christopher with something, mm. causing Lawler to descend back to ground level.
3: I love that Jerry Lawler is weaselly teasing a moonsault.
2: Christopher taunts Tacker, holding him just near his partner, and again, Lawler hits Tacker with something. So George Steele enters the ring and starts hitting the king and his son with some kind of foreign object, causing the DQ loss for his team at 2 minutes and 38 seconds.
3: I thought it looked like a plastic spoon.
2: yes. I don't think it was a
4: plastic spoon. Wooden spoon? Maybe wooden. <laughs> but it did kind of have that appearance and just how he held it.
3: Yeah,
4: made it look like a spoon. I'm not sure that Lorna actually had anything. I think he just like puts his hands in his trunks, punches him, and then puts his hand back in his trunk to make it What's look. like What a like spoon? he's rubbing his hand on his balls and going right? I'm going to punch you with a vinegary fist. <laughs> no, I don't think it's that. I
2: think the it's vinegar
3: just vinegar fist. I think he's
2: just pretending to have some brass nuts. when he. I don't think he has any. The announcers aren't sure who's been DQ'd as the lawless leg it to the back. Animal chants from the crowd as the mad old bastard throws something in the <laughs> ring and decides to throw it at referee Jimmy Corderas who bails from the ring as we go to commercial to end the first hour of the show. Is it like a box of ice or something? Yeah, yeah I think it's like an, yeah, one of those like plastic crates but he proper throws it at him. Yeah. Uh, he does. Jimmy Corderas does some great running away. I don't blame him to be fair. Well, the in-ring exchanges between Tacker and Brian Christopher were pretty good while they lasted, and the crowd popped for George Steele being revealed as the mystery partner, mm. so it wasn't the worst segment I've ever seen. Plus, I guess it keeps the Taka-Christopher feud going, and yeah, Lawler insisting JR was too sexy's dad is pretty amusing. That's a match they
4: could have given five minutes to. <laughs> a
2: yeah. whole five minutes?
4: <laughs> well, you know, but actually had... Because to... they, they could do something, you know, like not a memorable classic in five minutes... But you could actually have much more wrestling, because I, I dread to think what proportion of this show is wrestling. So,
2: in case you wondered, in the opening hour of this show, there was a grand total of under 10 minutes of actual bell-to-bell wrestling in one hour. Wow. So under 10 minutes.
4: Because like, if you got to, to ask me, I'd have said about six.
2: Yeah, I think it's like 9.50, wow. something like that.
4: Yeah, it feels very brief.
3: Mm. I was going to say, that last match probably had the most wrestling in that we've seen but I think the match could also be called What Has the Old Person on Your Team Got in Their Pants?
2: (laughs) Yes, it could. There's an audience challenge, if ever I heard one.
3: George Animal Steel (laughs) and Jerry Lawler are on opposing teams. What has has each person got in their pants to help them win?
4: Yeah, what's each person got in their pants and why?
2: (laughs) (laughs) It's Paul's turn to read something out. I'm I'm not reading that. I'm not reading that. I'm not reading that
3: yeah, what's Jerry Lawley got in his pants and what's he going to do with it? <laughs> that's a whole different
4: yeah, question. Have you heard of the scrotum frog? Sorry, what? Apparently, there's a type is of frog... this an affliction? <laughs> no, apparently it's a type of frog called like, a scrotum frog because it's got lots of folds of skin. Because
3: it looks like a ball sack. <laughs>
4: Basically, yes. <laughs> and do you think we've said the word ball sack too many times this episode? I mean, I've not looked it up because I don't think I want to see it. So Don't, I've never seen an image of one, but I was listening to something on the radio about it. Adam's going to look it up now on the
2: internet. Let's find out what a scrotum frog looks like. And we, we still have the life unboxing to come earlier, later. And what negotiations are going on between the New Gen podcast and Mike Tyson? <laughs> none. Spoilers, none.
3: <laughs> yeah. When you type in scrotum FR, the first <laughs> thing that comes up is scrotum frog. The second thing is scrotum frostbite. Pocket. <laughs> 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 that sounds like a horrible affliction. <laughs> oh dear! Well, that's it. Apparently, <laughs> <laughs> it does have a kind of scrotty appearance.
4: <laughs> like I can guarantee, like the the kind of hits on Google for scrotum frog searches.
3: The I'm gonna, I'm gonna, fro- I'm gonna double this. Month. It does look like. I mean, that kind of looks like a ball sack with like limbs and a face
2: where is it indigenous to
3: (laughs) fucking hell Lake Titicaca (laughs) (laughs) love love have you ever seen a scrotum frog well there's one (laughs) that is so bizarre the scrotum frogs of Lake Titicaca
4: (laughs) someone's just fucking about there
2: aren't they with names (laughs) that
3: might might, I mean that was was just a a model
4: somebody had made but yeah
3: yeah
2: Oh, hilarious. So, scrotum frog, thumbs up, thumbs in the middle, <laughs> thumbs down. Definitely thumbs up for the scrotum frog. <laughs> How about this match? Which match was it? <laughs> Jerry Law and Brian Christopher against Taka Michinoku and George
4: Steele. Well, I've got to say, it had the intrigue of the mystery partner, and I've not seen George Steele before, and I thought it was weird. I'll put my thumb in the middle.
3: I'm I'm middling it as well.
2: Yeah, I'm middling on that. Like the exchanges between Tacker and Christopher were quite good, and yeah, the crowd popped for George Steele, so yeah, thumbs in the middle.
3: But it was a bit too much foreign object fest.
2: After the opening credits for the second hour of the show, we get more pyro, and our announcers have switched to Jim Ross and Jerry the King Lawler, who recap the events from the first hour of the show and preview what's left. What's going on with the WWF and Mike Tyson? What's in Vince's box? Following Henry Godwin getting involved in the finish to the Billy Gun, Road Dog and Legion of Doom match at Degeneration X in your house, the LOD and the Godwins faced off for the umpteenth time the following night on the December 8th Roar is War, with the tag team champions accompanying the pig farmers to the ring. Thankfully, the match wouldn't go too long when Kane decided to get involved and hit Hawk with a pile driver, which he no-sold, a chokeslam and a tombstone, which he didn't. After Kane and Paul Bearer left, Dog and Gunn laid into Hawk (laughs) with some boots before cutting a promo where they sung the na 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 hey 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 goodbye song to the OLD and claimed that since there was no longer any competition in the tag team division, which is probably true, they would be venturing into singles action with Billy Gunn inviting anyone tough to face them. The challenge was answered by Dude Love with Road Dog joining the already crowded announced team of Jim Ross, Michael Cole, and Kevin Kelly on commentary. The dude would pick up the win over Badass following some sweet shin music and a double arm DDT, but would receive little time to celebrate when Road Dog absolutely pelted him across the head with a chair. Mm. Uh-huh. Dog and Gunn then draped their tag team titles across Dude Love's face before Billy Gunn hit a knee drop that was probably supposed to be a leg drop from the top rope to Dude to end the segment. With revenge on his mind, the following week on the December 15th Raw, Dude Love would take on the Road Dog, with Billy Gunn lending his incredible charisma to the announce booth. It would be this bout where JR christened Dog and Gunn the New Age Outlaws, although Billy would quickly take credit for the name. For the second week in a row, Dude would pick up the win following some sweet shin music and a double arm DDT. Billy Gunn would attempt a post-match chair shot, just as Road Dogg did the previous week, but Dude would block it and send Billy up the ramp. As Dude chased, Road Dog got involved and the newly christened New Age Outlaws hit a double-team suplex on the stage. Dude would block Billy, trying to shove him off the stage, but would eat a DDT on the steel shortly afterwards, followed by being accidentally shoved off the stage through a table when the Road dog pushed a referee. That was a sick one. Momentarily showing remorse for their actions, the duo would head down the ramp to check on the dude before laying the boots in as dude laid knocked out cold on the floor. Dude would be helped to his feet by officials during the commercial break. The Outlaws would return later in the broadcast, attacking Hawk during the Legion of Dooms match with Shawn Michaels and Triple H. After China whacked Animal in the balls, causing the disqualification, Billy Gunn shaved Hawk's weird mohawk thing, beginning an alliance that will see the Outlaws head further up the card. Dog and Gunn then assisted Michaels, Helmsley and China in powerbombing Animal off the apron through the announce table. Hawk was then subjected to a Billy Gunn top rope leg drop and a Shawn Michaels big elbow as the quintet celebrated as the show went off the air. Shawn Michaels nodded approvingly at the tag team champions, though in their show opening promo the next week, DX would dismiss Dog and Gun, claiming that they had done all the work and that the outlaws were merely vultures. On the December 22nd season's beatings episode of Rory's War, Mankind would reappear in the bowels of the building. Mankind would claim that, funnily enough, when you broke Dude Love's ribs, his hurt too. He didn't want to be in pain at Christmas, he wanted to drink eggnog. Mankind told the New Age Outlaws that he knew at Christmas it was better to give than to receive, and as such, he was going to give them the beating of a lifetime. The Outlaws would then be shown throughout the programme, decked in hard hats, searching the arena's basement for Mankind, and beating up a random dude who looked a bit like him from behind in the back. This all built to a brawl that saw Mankind singing Christmas songs as he attacked Dog and Gun and ended with the outlaws locking Mankind in a walk-in freezer, which is presumably where he spent Christmas.
4: Aww. You're
1: the smallest baby boy! Ooh, new age outlaws! We are in Long Island! And as you know, a few short weeks ago, you broke the dude's ribs. But more than that, daddy's you broke the dude's heart because I saw something in you two cats. Maybe a future with the real of us shocking and jibing. But then the two of you did not play by the rules. You see, the dude stands for peace, love, and understanding. And I went over 3 against you two cats. So the dude is going to step down and let another cat do his fighting for it. Because the dude may have mercy... But this other cat will not... Ow! Thanks, dude. Because I've been looking forward to this for a long time. Because although my body has now fought out, my heart remains frozen, which is bad news for the New Age Outlaws. But then I got to thinking that maybe the New Age Outlaws didn't commit a crime. Maybe... They gave me a favor, because it's all starting to make perfect sense. We're in Long Island, I'm on raw as war, and Mrs. Foley's little boy is finally home. There's no place like home. There's no place like home. New Age Outlaws, I know what you're thinking. My name's not Dorothy. Dorothy i don't wear ruby red slippers well right you are because i'm cactus jack and my shoes will be the one that are kicking your ass mom i know what you're thinking you're out there in the coliseum right now with your eyes closed because you're afraid some harm is going to come to your little boy because it's two on one well open those eyes mom because i've got help chainsaw charlie's here and as for you two boys, well, you've got a surprise for me. Well, I've got
2: a surprise for you. Bye-bye. The Road dog and Billy Gunn make their way to the ring carrying hockey sticks. Dog does his shtick on the way to the ring and asks for a recap of the Outlaw's greatest hits. Basically, chair shots to Dude Love's head, tossing him off the stage and locking him in a freezer. Dude Love's music hits, but he doesn't walk out on the stage. Instead, he appears on the Titantron. Dude says the outlaws have broken his heart, as he thought they might be friends, so now he's going to let someone else do the fighting for him. Mankind appears on the screen and says that while he's thawed out, his heart remains frozen, which is bad news for the outlaws. Mankind says that as they're in Long Island, Mrs Foley's baby boy is coming home. Mankind then merges into Cactus Jack, who gets by far the biggest pop Mm. of the three. Cactus says he's not Dorothy from the Wizard of Oz. His shoes will be kicking their asses. Cactus also says he has help, so it won't be two on one. Chainsaw Charlie is here. Cactus walks out carrying a surprise—a baseball
4: bat covered in barbed wire. I like this. You liked the pre-match kind of setup? Yeah, I thought. I thought it was all pretty good actually. I thought the New Age Outlaws did a reasonable job, and the, there's enough clips just about to to back it up and to show what's happening. So for me, as somebody who's not seen every roar in between, I'm happy with that and I'm up to date. The only thing that I was slightly unsure about is, should he have mentioned Chainsaw Charlie in that promo, That that's my only reservation.
3: I really quite liked it. You right, There's enough in there to give a good amount of context to it. I thought Road Dogg was really good. Yeah. Is the last time we saw him they didn't have the music?
2: They had the music but they didn't have the name.
3: So I think now the package has kind of come together and he's talking like really confidently on the mic and we know that they gain a load of catchphrases as they go through it but i think he talked really well over it and it's yeah it just plays to their strengths doesn't it he really doesn't let billy do any talking
2: well oddly enough there was one of the weeks a couple of weeks before this where they let billy do oh shit the opening spiel and it just isn't as good or yeah as as fluid as road dogs yeah
3: because road dogs really is quite it's quite comfortable I thought the Foley intro was good. It wasn't as good as the interview yeah. one that we've seen, and it's very similar in terms of what it's doing, but it was still quite good. Mm.
2: The Outlaws bail from the ring before double-teaming Cactus when he tries to follow them. Back in the ring, they whack him with hockey sticks, but Cactus applies a double mandible claw to the tag team champions and tosses Billy Gunn from the ring. I quite like that. The bell rings to begin the match, and Cactus kicks away at Dog in the corner. Jim Ross wishes the Legion of Doom well, recovering from their heinous attack at the hands of the Outlaws and DX, making reference to a tag team title match signed for the Royal Rumble between Hawk, Animal, Dog and Gun. Cactus charges the Road Dog in the corner with a big knee and throws him to ringside. Cactus hits an elbow drop off the apron to the floor and signals bang bang as Jerry the King Lawler wonders who Chainsaw Charlie might be. Jim Ross speculates he might just be a figment of Mick Foley's imagination. Mm -hmm. Fair comment. Back in the ring, Cactus clotheslines himself and Dog straight back outside the ring. Billy Gunn stalks Cactus and looks to hit him with the barbed wire-covered baseball bat, but Jack cuts him off. This does, however, allow Road Dog the opportunity to absolutely wallop Cactus round the head with a steel chair. Nasty. Now, we're entering an era where obviously this is like, you know, as common as a headlock. Probably more common. Probably more common, <laughs> Yes. Obviously, we know now that this is something that's been, for the most part, kind of... What's the word I'm looking for? Not eradicated, but, like, it's been phased out, hasn't it? Like, people, for the most part, realise that taking these shots directly to the head is a bad idea. Is it something that going back and watching this era's amount of them makes you feel uncomfortable? Or are are you kind of, you know, it's the times, that's what they did. Yes, there were some very unfortunate consequences of it, but... I or think, does it make you wince?
3: It's yeah, it makes me wince. It's more shocking now, looking back, with you know all the research that's been done onto you know what prolonged effects this yeah. type of like wrestling can have. While at the time you just assume that everything's done with a, a degree of safety in mind. Yeah, so surely it's okay.
4: It's kind of up to a point, though. So I think there's times where you see it and you think yeah, there must be something to it, which means they can do that without them just not getting up. But there's times where you see it and you just think, yeah, and there's those moments. And the ones on this one are are bad enough that it's like, hmm, but yeah, there's some horrible ones over the next few years, aren't there, so?
2: Yeah. Billy Gunn joins in beating Jack up and the pair roll Cactus into the ring. Cactus quickly recovers and hits Road with the double-arm DDT. He goes for the cover, but Billy Gunn breaks up the pin and for some reason, the referee decides this is absolutely enough interference and calls (laughs) to the bell, giving Cactus the DQ win at 2 minutes and 12 seconds. Gosh, that was quick.
3: A really, really bizarre ending to it. Mm. So, yeah, that school-crushing chair shot, that's okay. But just breaking up a pin, that's not. That's a DQ. Just seemed... All kinds are wrong.
4: Mm. The
2: outlaws continue to assault Cactus after the bell, lining him to the outside. Cactus invites Dog and Gun to follow him up the ramp, which they do. Cactus smashes Dog into the wooden crate on the stage, causing the sound of a chainsaw to start up.
4: Well, It starts rattling first a bit, doesn't it? Oh, does it start kind of just swaying? Yeah, it, it kind of rattles from side to side. I don't know if you picks up on that.
3: There's a, there's a shot of it pr- earlier in the night as well, isn't there? A bit moving around a bit.
2: As the outlaws stand around looking scared, someone cuts themselves a door out of the box. Jerry Lawler wonders if it's Leatherface, but instead an educated guest might say it's the aforementioned chainsaw Charlie, mm. who continues to wield his sparking chainsaw dangerously close
4: to paying customers as he makes his way down the ramp, chasing the outlaws. You know, literally kind of waving it around side to side as he walks down the aisleway. He must have, at some stage, been within six inches of people's hands. Like, I was, like he could have just lopped somebody's finger off or something. Or arm, or yeah. head.
3: And obviously, we all know who Chainsaw Charlie is. And when you conceive in this, and whoever the fuck is in charge of health and safety on this programme, saying, OK, I've got a box, fair enough. In it, I'm going to put Terry Funk. Alright, you know, that sounded a bit risky. I'm also going to put a sock over his head. <laughs> OK... And then I'm going to give him a running, fully functional <laughs> chainsaw. <laughs> and then I'm going to get him to wave it around his head as he goes down the entrance ramp. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like a wonderful idea. Please do that. Nothing will go wrong.
2: Yeah, by wield, what I actually mean is <laughs> swing around his head while not really paying attention.
3: Yeah. <laughs> while fans wave their arms yeah. out at yeah. him. Yeah. Like, yeah. Uh, like, like, honestly, like, those those fans aren't the most sensible, I don't think. Can you imagine what would have happened if a fan reached their arms out and he'd have just, like, lopped all their fingers off mm. with a chainsaw?
4: Like, a, 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 I'm not joking, that could have happened.
2: <laughs> the bizarre thing is, and it's a segment we'll talk about when we get to the main event, is that there's a whole thing where Vince says, oh, in heart, you can't come out through the yeah. crowd, it's endangering the fans. Yeah. Terry Funk, have your chainsaw. So, yeah. That's We're just that like an
3: old, partially blind man? He's also
2: got talcum powder in his
3: eyes. the ramp of a chainsaw.
2: Jack and Charlie surround the outlaws as a Terry chant starts up. Charlie decides to chainsaw the ring post mm. as the outlaws run through the ring and up the ramp. Charlie lobs his chainsaw into the aisle and bounces up and down the ropes on his balls as the segment ends with Cactus's music playing. Right, he just comes across as an utter nutter.
3: (laughs) I mean, what a great intro for the character, but from a risk assessment standpoint.
4: It's a health and safety nightmare. It really is. You know, I alluded to it earlier, like I because to me there's, there's some nonsensical stuff here. So firstly, I don't see why Mick Foley's referencing Chainsaw Charlie When he's still there, is still this box on the stage, and also if he's just there waiting a box, that's just stupid. (laughs) And the third part is why is he waiting till after the two-on-one handicap match to come out? Well, it's not a handicap match, is it? Well, no, no, but effectively it is. Yeah, yeah. So to me, it just makes. Don't get me wrong; I like it. I'm going to give it a thumbs up. I'll say that now, but (laughs) like, there's, there's no logic to that in my book
2: so the match itself was another two minute special but yeah i actually really enjoyed the introduction of chainsaw charlie the pre-match spiel from Mick foley was pretty much a redux version of what we saw at msg earlier in the year and it doesn't get anywhere near as big a reaction but it was a good way to reintroduce cactus jack into the storylines
3: i really quite liked it The, the match again was nothing but if you want to introduce a character firstly it If you want to introduce a character and have them be seen as a a nutcase, firstly, have them team up with Cactus Jack. Yep. Secondly, put a mask on them, give them a chainsaw, make them out like a lunatic, make them bounce on their own balls. There you go. Perfect. That guy is crazy. We kind of like him, but we're kind of scared of him.
2: Do you know who his idea Chainsaw Charlie was? Terry Funk's. Terry Funk describes his debut in his autobiography more than just hardcore. Quote, I got ready for my big debut on Raw that Monday night in December and the plan was for me to come out of a box. Bruce Pritchard, one of the backstage guys, was describing to me what they wanted me to do. I said, that's it? You just want me to come out of a box? Well, yeah, he said. Just come out of the box. Do you want to come out of something? Before my brain could fully process the question, my lips blurted out, Chainsaw Charlie, (laughs) get me a chainsaw so I can go out there. I can't explain it. It just popped into my mind. (laughs) they asked me what I wanted to wear and then got me some Levi jeans and a pair of suspenders I already had a red shirt so I kept that (laughs) then they got me a woman's pantyhose stocking and some baby powder to put on my head all at my request what an idiot I guess I could have just gone out there without anything over my head but I wouldn't have been Chainsaw Charlie with Terry Funk's head would I I'd have been Chainsaw Terry (laughs) I came out of the box, with my chainsaw and my stocking over my head, and the crowd, expecting some great surprise, let out a sound that seemed strangely reminiscent of escaping gas. I had visions of coming out to a tremendous roar, but that wasn't exactly the reaction I got. End quote. Yeah.
4: Barking.
3: So basically, the idea came from when Terry Funk had a moment.
4: (laughs) Well, well, when somebody said, like, what was your reaction? It was like, you're going to have this big kind of um, debut on this programme. We want you to come out of a box.
3: Chainsaw Charlie. There you go. Chainsaw Charlie.
4: Chainsaw Adam. For
2: the record, Funk also confirmed that one of the first things Vince McMahon asked him when he came to work for this run with the WWF was, so, how's your horse? If that is true, that is brilliant.
3: That's amazing. Yeah,
2: the, yeah. If, if that is correct, that's amazing. And that's also to a callback to, like,
4: episode three, when yeah. that joke first surfaced.
3: It also shows that Vince does have a good sense of humour.
4: And, and also, that actually maybe Vince sends in some of the suggestions to this show. <laughs> some <of> the show. Just under a pseudonym. <laughs> In his first book, Have a Nice Day, Mick Foley backs up
2: Terry Funk's feelings about his debut, describing it as somewhat anticlimactic, and reiterates that it was Funk's request that he be Chainsaw Charlie rather than Terry Funk. It was, of course, also Foley's idea to bring Funk back to the WWF, who Foley says had been blackballed by the WWF following his contributions to Shotgun Saturday Night back in January.
3: (laughs) Well, that was fine, though.
2: Foley's original pitch was a feud between himself and Funk in a best-of-seven deathmatch series that would run through the Royal Rumble, the February pay-per-view, and culminate at WrestleMania in March in a rematch of their infamous King of the Deathmatch 1995 tournament final. A no-rope, barbed wire, barbed wire board, C4 explosive, exploding ring deathmatch that would have been filmed at Funk's Amarillo Ranch. Wow. Foley claims that Vince McMahon was initially receptive to the idea, but gradually the idea got changed, with Foley believing that that may have been due to all the media attention that having Mike Tyson involved in WrestleMania was likely to bring. Foley describes how a few days after his initial pitch to Vince, Jim Cornette called him and advised him that they wanted Funk to team with Foley initially before having the pair feud with one another, and we'll see how that turns out in the coming months. So, Road Dogg vs Cactus Jack and the wooden crate reveal... Thumbs up, thumbs in the middle, or thumbs down. Up, up. Oh. See, I've highlighted middle, but I think I meant up, so I'm going to go with up. Mm.
3: <laughs> yeah, you know, Terry Funk emerges from a box with a chainsaw. That's thumbs up all the way.
4: I mm. mean, I mean, like I'd, I'd have been intrigued to have seen. Obviously, that's something that, that you wanted to see of, the
3: death match, didn't you?
4: Well, but also just like the the do do hardcore matches, don't they? Yeah, but I wouldn't call anything that they do. Tipping into that death match category that I've ever seen on WWE slash F. No, there's never any light tubes, I don't think. But it's it's just so it's it's just really interesting that Mick Foley has kind of even pitched that idea.
3: I think you can pitch anything at this point in time.
4: Well, I mean, I, I wonder if it's to maybe keep some prominence in this era where things are deliberately getting edgier. and, yeah. and to go to kind of that side of things, so I can see some logic to it, but. From his point of view, he's getting to a stage where he's starting to do a little bit of wrestling that is perhaps less demanding on his body, you know, some yeah. of the dude loves stuff. So I'm a little bit surprised that he suggested going back that in that direction.
2: I think that's due to him kind of actually believing that what he and Funk created in that kind of 1995 King of the Death match tournament final, like that's worth a bigger audience seeing. Like I think he fully believes in kind of the integrity and the kind of the validity of that version of wrestling. Mm. And he's kind of seen an opportunity to go, right, I can I can try to get this out to a bigger audience and I can get my mentor a bit of a gig and it gives me something to do kind of post, you know, post the Kane feud, you yeah. know, kind of even post... The Triple H feud, like, he hasn't done a great deal, bar a bit of being Austin's partner and the kind of bit of feud with Kane. Like, what else is he going to do at this time? True. So, yeah, I think that might be it. Certainly grab attention. Following his victory over Butterbean at D-Generation X in your house, Mark Merrow continued acting like a five-star bellend every time he appeared on television. On the December 8th episode of Rory's War, Merrow would be scheduled to face Salvatore Sincere. Yes, he's still a thing. But Marvelous would express his disdain for facing the low car performer, calling Sincere a jobber and a jabroni, before revealing that, shock horror, Sal Sincere wasn't even his real name. It's Tom Brandy. Merrow then derided Brandy for playing a stupid gimmick, which did allow Jim Ross to get in a great quip of, yeah, and I'm a bad man. <laughs> Merrow then revealed a new and improved Sable who emerged wearing a potato sack. Merrow demanded that Sable disrobe him. However, after pondering whether to do this, Sable instead disrobed herself to reveal something that was probably marketed in some shop as a bikini and in other shops as a piece of string. Mm. As Merrow tried to cover Sable up, Brandy drop-kicked Mero from the ring and encouraged the crowd to chant for Sable to end the segment. Merrow would seek revenge on Brandy the following week on the December 15th Raw, whacking him in the balls after Brandy defeated the Sultan. Yes, he's still a thing, although that would be the character's final appearance on Raw. Hmm. On the December 22nd Raw, Merrow would take on Scott Taylor, picking up a quick win with the TKO. Mero would once again attempt to dress Sable up, this time in a reindeer outfit, telling her she had nice antlers. Are they real? Following a post-match attack by Tom Brandy, Sable would take off the costume to reveal a sexy Miss Santa ensemble.
0: I proudly hold the Raw magazine, which goes on sale tomorrow. You and Sonny each adorning split covers to commemorate Raw going monthly. We couldn't be more proud to see your lovely face on the cover of this great magazine. But I understand that inside, you have even some... Better treats for all the fans a We'll real, find that out tomorrow a real swimsuit
6: edition, That's Kate. right Kevin yeah.
1: You know no. I'm very proud of the new Raw Swimsuit Edition That goes on sale tomorrow And I just thought That I would give all my fans
6: A special treat tonight Uh oh I'm sure Kevin Kelly's going to be holding that book For a long time I thought that I would give you a preview Of what to expect That is If you'd like to
0: see it Oh yeah. Go out ahead, please. But wait a minute. Wait, hold up. Oh my gosh. That goes out. Marvelous Mark Merrow. The man that Sable manages. Marvelous Mark Merrow. Man, I don't blame him. I Hey, I'm just here for too. the show. Well, if you don't if you don't mind, we'd like to finish this interview, if we could.
1: You know, Sable, you weren't going to do anything that might humiliate Marvelous Mark Merrow now, would you? You weren't going to do nothing to say, piss me off now, would you, Sable? You know, these people came here to see me wrestle. Not you take those clothes off. Uh Uh-oh. I'm the star here. Mark, take it easy. Mark, come on. Take it easy. I'm the star... And if it wasn't for me, you wouldn't be a no-magazine, you understand me? Mark, get a hold of yourself. You got a point there. Control yourself. Are, are, are you talking to me? You ain't nothing but a third-string announcer, fat boy! Get out of my
0: face! Come on, come on! <laughs> oh,
2: my God! Sable's music hits, and she emerges wearing a dressing gown to a massive pop as she makes her way to the ring to be interviewed by Kevin Kelly. I always get a big pop in my dressing gown. From who? It's everyone. Kevin tells us about Sable and Sonny adorning split covers to celebrate Raw magazine going monthly. Sable does some talking, completely reiterating exactly what Kevin just said and saying she wants to give all her fans a special treat this evening, a preview of what to expect from the magazine. Mm. Before she could disrobe, marvellous Mark Mero makes his way to the ring chair in hand. Mero sits down on the chair in the ring and says he's here for the show. He asks Sable if she was planning on doing anything that might humiliate him or piss him off. Sable shakes her head. Merrow says that the people came here to see him wrestle, not to see her take her clothes off, which gets him the biggest heat of the night. <laughs> mm. Merrow says if it wasn't for him, she wouldn't be in any magazine. He's the star. Kevin Kelly tries to get Merrow to calm down and control himself, so Merrow calls him fat boy and whacks him in the balls. As Mero berates Sable in the corner, Tom Brandy runs to ringside and punches Mero before assisting Sable. This means Brandy turns his back on Mero, so Mero whacks him with the chair and hits a TKO onto it. Mero grabs the raw magazine and asks Brandy if he wants Sable. Mero rips pages of the magazine and shoves them in Brandy's mouth and underpants. Mero says he'll do the same to everyone in the crowd if he sees any more magazines with Sable in them.
4: So presumably nobody needs to buy any? Just. Sable leaves as Mero celebrates in the ring to end the segment. Wasn't so keen on this.
3: Mero's doing a good job of being a dickhead.
2: He's dislikable.
3: Really, really dislikable, but it's all for the benefit of Sable, isn't it? So, I don't know. He is rocking the double denim. mm. Doesn't make up for his mullet, but it's going some distance.
4: Because, yeah, I mean, he comes off as dislikable. Brandy just. I don't think has got enough momentum or enough star power to really be that person doing that. Yeah, it's all a bit out of nowhere. Like, yeah. I get that they
2: set the feud up by having Mero kind of reveal him to not be Salvatore sincere, but you're like, why would you give a shit about him? Yeah. And, and
3: is this kind of thing that you call him a jobber and reveal him as a jobber, and then uh, he jobs to you? Yeah, and then <laughs> you whack
4: yeah. him in the balls loads. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's, it's not doing anybody any favours. And yeah, I'm not... So keen on Sable as you guys, so... Probably thumbs down for me, this bit.
3: I'll give this a thumbs down as well, because I personally don't like what it's doing to the Mero character. There's still this underlying feeling of kind of spousal abuse yeah, going on. Do you want to do anything to humiliate me or anger me? I don't think it's doing anything for Mero to be picking up victories over someone that he's called a jobber and then going a job to him. I don't think it's doing anything for Tom Brandy to be... Revealed as someone else that's outside the gimmick and then not get a win out of it. And I don't like the fact that Sable didn't take a coat off. I was just
2: going to say, I was like, <laughs> Adam, just cut the bullshit. You're giving it a thumbs down because you didn't take a dressing gown off.
3: No, I actually believe in those the first things <laughs> that I said. What about Kevin Kelly? I feel sorry for Kevin Kelly. He tried to do an interview and got punched in the dick. Bad night.
2: Mm. I'm going to give it a thumbs in the middle purely because, like, I actually thought Meryl was quite good in kind of his role, like, yeah, when he sort of stomps to the ring and just sits on the chair and is like, right,
4: what are you going to do then? Well, You're not going to do anything that's going to humiliate me, are you? Well, he's, he is good in the role, but like, from my point of view, do I want to see another one of these segments and another? No, I don't. The Undertaker was announced as the number one contender to Shawn Michaels'
2: WWF title in the opening segment of the December 15th episode of Raw Is War with their bout set for the 1998 edition of the Royal Rumble. The stipulation was also announced that the contest would be a casket match. The Undertaker claimed that their previous bouts had shown that he could beat Michaels at will, and that now Michaels was the WWF champion, he would have to look into the eyes of the Reaper and know that one-on-one he couldn't beat the Deadman. Taker hyped his participation in casket matches as being legendary, and even referenced his loss to Yokozuna at Royal Rumble 1994, claiming that his loss there came at the hands of 10 of the WWF's top talent, and that he couldn't count 10 members of D-Generation X, so Michaels best give his soul to the Lord, because his ass belonged to The Undertaker. As Taker signed off, Paul Bearer and Kane entered the arena and walked to the ring, with the brothers staring each other down in the squared circle for the first time on Raw. Bearer sarcastically claimed that this was a beautiful family portrait, but the only thing that was missing was their parents, the parents that the Undertaker murdered. Bearer once again reiterated that the agony that all the WWF superstars were going through at the moment was Taker's fault, but that he'd give Taker one more chance to step up to the plate to be a man and to face his brother. As ever, Taker did nothing. Kane then slapped Taker around the face but when he went to do that for a second time Taker stopped his hand before leaving the ring and looking back at his brother as the segment ended The Undertaker's sole Raw match in December would see him take on The Rock on the December 22nd season's Beatings show though naturally it would go to a non-finish when Kane appeared just as Taker was on the verge of victory following a chokeslam and a tombstone to the Intercontinental Champion
7: Mm.
2: Once again Paul Bearer cut a promo against The Undertaker, telling Taker he was ashamed that he ever stood by his side. Bearer told Taker it was so sad that his parents were celebrating Christmas with maggots and worms, causing Taker to attack Bearer, but Kane cut him off. For the first time, it looked like The Undertaker might fight back against his brother, but ultimately, Taker refused and allowed Kane to beat him down. Hmm. Seven angry men, i.e. Chains, Skull... Eightball, ball Mosh, Thrasher, Flashfunk and Scott Taylor make their way to the ring as we head to a commercial break. When we return, Chains has a mic. You on board with this? Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm Chains' guy. He says that Kane's ass is going to get burned by the DOA and the rest of the crew. Kane and Paul Bearer make their way to the ring as those in the ring anticipate his presence. After Kane sets his pyro off, the lights go out and The Undertaker's music hits to a mega pop. Jim Ross says it's going to be eight men against Kane as Taker walks down to the ring. Ross says this is a death sentence for Kane. Taker gets on the steel steps and raises the lights. The DOA seem to think that Taker is going to assist them as the brothers stare each other down. Unfortunately for them, Taker helps Kane clear the ring of those there to assault his younger brother. Taker then leads the ring to mild booze. Jr. wonders why Taker has done this and what else might happen tonight. Taker tells the camera that he will burn in hell before he ever fights Kane, which Jr. reiterates. A replay shows Paul Bearer looking shocked on the
4: outside. I thought this was a really good segment, well booked. I really like the fact that the, the kind of it does tease, and I, I kind of thought, oh, we might we might get a little bit of fisticuffs between the two of them, and and no, you don't get any such thing. You obviously get his protection of his brother, and you kind of get this protracted wait. You know, we're being made to wait and wait and wait to see this actually get physical. And I think that's really good booking.
3: Yeah, and it adds a bit of complexity to the storyline. Instead of just Kane's going to come out and disrupt things, and are they're not going to fight. We now learn that Undertaker is going to help Kane or save Kane for himself. Yeah, it's or, more like... It, it, uh, yeah. it's a bit of, there's a bit more depth now to the storyline build. So, yeah, really, really good stuff.
2: Yeah, not only is he not going to fight his brother, but actively, yeah, like, if you lot try and kick my brother's ass, I'm actually going to stop you doing that.
3: Yeah, Kane's in a pretty good spot at the minute.
2: And, and take his line to the camera at the end of, I'll burn in hell before I fight my brother. Like, mm. that's definitely... I mean, I'm, I'm presuming you know where this goes.
7: Mm-hmm.
2: Like, that's clearly a very deliberate line yeah, yeah, yeah. that you know there's a reason he's saying that and there's a reason jr reiterates that so yeah jobbers confront kane thumbs up thumbs in the middle or thumbs down up yeah thumbs up yeah know. thumbs up it it definitely like you say adds a bit of intrigue and breaks up the kane just comes out and assaults people and beats them down like yeah there's another layer there now and there's something different going on
3: mm. yeah plus we got um our second doa appearance of the night mm. And Scott Taylor, mullet? Yeah, mullet.
0: Notwithstanding my... what happened tonight, gentlemen, you still have to defend the tag team titles at the Royal Rumble against the LOD on January. Are you 18? kidding me? The Are you kidding me?
1: The titles? the titles LOD? There's a <laughs> guy chasing us dead. with a chainsaw, oh, and a a a you're asking ball. us about LOD? You've got to be kidding me! That's unbelievable! They've gone too far. This isn't going to happen anymore. I'm sick of it. And you're asking us about LOD? LOD and what and do the they have to titles? do with anything? Nothing at all. He's running around like crazy. about to kill us all. Are you kidding me?
6: The three and Cactus Jack.
2: Jim Ross hands off to Michael Cole, who is backstage with the New Age Outlaws. Cole wants to talk about their tag title defence against the LOD, but Gunn grabs him by the collar and says, forget that, they just got chased by a nutcase with a chainsaw. Fair point. Yeah, he actually has a point there. As they rant at Cole, the chainsaw starts cutting through the door behind them. (laughs) Dog and Gunn leg it, stopping to grab their tag team titles, as Chainsaw Charlie emerges, and Cactus Jack falls through the door,
4: almost taking out the cameraman. Well, interesting, isn't it, this segment? Because... I don't think you see them trying the door knob first.
3: Shall we try and open it? No, I'll just chainsaw it, mate. To be fair, if you had a chainsaw, that's what you'd do, right? Yeah. That's how I'd open every door. (laughs) How would you close them? (laughs) I'd buy a new door.
2: (laughs) I thought this was a nice little bit of follow up. Like, yeah, uh, I thought it was cool. Yeah, it just kind of, again, gets over. Like, these pair are bonkers. Like, the New Age Outlaws should genuinely be scared.
3: Yeah. Yes. They're being pursued by a man with a chainsaw. Well, the WWF has asked me to do a
6: commentary on the state of wrestling in 1998. I guess they figure Cornette's always good for a couple of laughs. Well, I'm not really going to be too funny tonight. Because, you see, I think the state of wrestling in 1998 stinks. I think WCW stinks. I think the NWO stinks. I think ECW is embarrassing. And I think the WWF stinks. And I'll tell you why. You don't have to go back any further than last week on Raw. You got a guy coming out dressed like a Christmas tree. You got a woman coming out dressed like a reindeer. You got two adolescent mullet heads showing their butt cheeks on national TV and having a phony match for a championship. I think it stinks. I think it's disgusting. I think nobody has any respect for wrestling anymore. Where is wrestling? Not sports entertainment, but wrestling. You know, just a couple of years ago, I left my home in Tennessee and I moved to Connecticut, which is like trading a Hawaiian vacation for a bed in a cancer ward, to come to work for the WWF full-time, the biggest wrestling promotion in the history of the planet. And I moved to Connecticut with snow on the ground seven months out of the year. Real estate prices that would make Donald Trump's hair stand on end. The rudest bunch of people I've ever seen were English as a second language and traffic jams at 4 o'clock in the morning. But I think that's okay because I'm with the biggest wrestling promotion of all time, the WWF. But over the last couple of years, I don't see any wrestling. They got some great wrestlers around here, but they don't have any time to wrestle because of all the falderall and the nonsense going on. You see what the problem is, is the people running the two big promotions. One guy is a game show host wannabe from Minneapolis with phony teeth, phony hair, and a phony tan. And running the WWF, you got a whole office building full of Yankees from New York City that wouldn't know a wrestling match if it bit them. So they sit around all day, listen to people on the internet, and the people on the internet wouldn't know a wrist lock from a wrist watch. I don't particularly care what some Yankee from New York City wants to see. I want to see wrestling matches with wrestlers. I want to see real old-fashioned wrestling. I want to see some people who have some respect for the traditions of the wrestling industry, have some respect for the sport of wrestling. I don't want to see sports entertainment. And flying donkeys all around. I think it's garbage, I think it's insulting, and I think it's a shame to a fine sport like this. Down south where I come from, they know wrestling. They were brought up on it. They grew up on it, and they respect it. And I think it's about time that the promoters in the wrestling industry today recognize that wrestling fans watching a wrestling program want to see wrestlers wrestle. That's, that's easy. It's not too hard to understand if you just think about it. But the problem is, is that nobody has any respect for tradition. Well, I got news for you. I got respect for tradition, and I've always been associated with real good old fashioned wrestling, a sport of wrestling, not a circus sideshow, not a cartoon show. And if nobody else is going to bring some wrestling around here, then maybe it's going to be up to Jim Cornette. So that might be my New Year's resolution for 1998. I might bring some tradition, I might bring some real wrestling back and clear this whole mess out because I think it stinks. So there's my address, there's my opinion, there's my commentary. Do with it what you want. Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, bah humbug, I'm out of here.
2: Jim Ross throws to Jim Cornette, who says that he's been asked to give a commentary on the state of wrestling as we roll into 1998. He says that, quite frankly, the state of wrestling is that it stinks. He says that WCW stinks, the NWO stinks, ECW is embarrassing, and the WWF stinks. He tells us to look no further than all of that garbage we saw on Raw last week, a man dressed as a Christmas tree a woman dressed as a reindeer and two adolescent mullet heads mooning and having a fake match to see that nobody has any respect for wrestling anymore. Not sports entertainment, but wrestling. He moved to Connecticut from Tennessee so that he could be part of the WWF full time, which he says is like trading a Hawaiian vacation for a bed on a cancer ward. But he's getting sick of what he has to work with. Don't get him wrong. There are certainly some great wrestlers here, but they never get to show it because of all the folderol and the nonsense they're made to do instead. The people running these companies are a major part of the problem as we have a game show host, Wannabe, Eric Bischoff down in Atlanta. And then here in the WWF, we have a bunch of Yankees who don't have a clue what wrestling is. Cornette says he doesn't give a damn what Yankees or people on the internet want to see. He wants wrestling matches with wrestlers wrestling not sports entertainment or flying donkeys, and that that's what wrestling fans watching a wrestling program want to see. It's really not too hard to understand. All he wants to see is people with respect for the type of wrestling he grew up with, given the chance to run things, and that if no one is willing to make that happen, then maybe it's up to him. Happy New Year! Jerry the King Lawler asks for an amen and asks Jim Ross if he agrees, which
4: he clearly does, but doesn't commit to it. I thought this was really good. Uh, it's just spot on. As far as I'm concerned, they're, they're kind of quite shrewd judgments that I, I pretty much agree with.
3: Yeah, I, I've always liked the stuff that we've seen from Jim Cornette. He is the best ranter yeah. in the business. This is a flawless rant that makes an awful lot of sense and is designed to make him a heel, but I don't think it does.
4: No, I, I just think he comes across as well. I'm not quite sure where they're going with this because effectively they're putting the product down. But
3: Well, he mentions in that timeline review that they had him do loads of these things about old school wrestling and it was kind of designed to make him the cranky old man that was going against the new way that the wrestling business was going mm. and supposed to get him lots of heat.
2: Which he does now and gets him a lot of heat on the internet, but go on. Well...
3: Yeah, but at the time, and Mm -hmm. at least from what he's saying on that DVD, when they did lots of house shows and they'd do these things, he actually got cheered by a section of the crowd. Now, granted, we're going off one man's (laughs) analysis of it, but I think there is still a section of people that quite like what he's saying.
4: Yeah, I mean, I I think, you know, because it does just make sense, doesn't it? People who go to wrestling shows probably want to watch wrestling. And okay, they might be entertained by the stuff as well, but primarily... If they didn't like wrestling, they wouldn't go. They would just watch all these myriads of other things that wrestling is trying to be. They'd watch Days, Days of, of Our lives. lives. They'd watch Seinfeld. They'd watch Jerry Springer, etc., etc.
2: That said, he's saying that wrestling fans want to watch wrestlers wrestling. I'd argue that so far on this show, and admittedly, like, the majority of the matches have been under three minutes, like, bar signature spots here and there, none of the actual
4: wrestling has gotten any kind of reaction. But also, do you think the crowd has already started to change already?
2: Yeah, but that doesn't mean that they're not wrestling fans. Like, if wrestling has morphed and the fans have morphed, then they're still wrestling fans. They're just a different kind of wrestling fan to what Cornette considers wrestling fans. Okay. Do you think having him put the WWF down either lends him credence and lends the idea credence that this is Cornette legitimately talking, or do you think there's a danger that like people watching the show might actually agree?
3: Uh, a bit of both. I mean, there's there's a danger of that, but he's being told to do this, you know, by Vince. So at least Vince sees that it's going to be something that is not going to be detrimental to his product.
4: I agree, and I guess if they've got a plan of where's that going, because if they're making it, as you say, for him to be the bad guy that's going against a new product that people do like, yeah, then actually then that does create a, a good focal point for something to happen, and I haven't got a problem with it, but if it's just him doing it for the sake of it directionless and obviously that's crazy so now do you think that Jim Cornette being
2: positioned as the guy who wants to see wrestlers wrestling on a wrestling show being positioned as a heel against Vince McMahon who two weeks earlier is going you want sports entertainment and I'm giving it to you and I'm borrowing from all these shows you like and thank you for coming like Vince is the baby face and saying, yeah, this this way that we're going forward, Like this is the way you want. And a guy who's kind of stuck with this archaic mentality of, mm. no, you don't want flying donkeys and people dressed as Christmas trees and a woman dressed as a reindeer and adolescent mullet heads, he's the heel. Do you think there's a very deliberate kind of contrast there they're trying to present?
3: Possibly. It's, it's difficult to say because we we're speculating on the inner workings of Vince McMahon's mind here, <laughs> which... Is murky waters at best.
4: Yeah, I think you could well be
2: right. It is worth remembering, however, that the man giving this speech once wrestled a Ninja Turtle. So, Jim Cornette promo. Thumbs up, thumbs in the middle, thumbs down.
3: Oh. I'll get him in up. Yeah. yeah. Just fantastic performance. Always fantastic performance from the guy.
2: And I remember listening to an interview with Kevin Kelly where he said they would go down and record these and Cornette would just do them first take.
3: Mm. Yeah, like there there is no one that can speak at that sort of frequency. This pace and actually with, you know, really the complex sentences, he's not just like spouting out simple stuff and make no bloody errors in it. mm. It's him and Ric Flair, really.
2: We get the slam of the week from last week, which is Stone Cold hitting the stunner to Santa Claus. After much hype all night, Jim Ross finally reveals what's going on with the World Wrestling Federation and Mike Tyson. Well, he tries to, until Sonny emerges on the stage and does... Well, she twirls for a bit and then leaves. Lawler once again plugs the Raw swimsuit magazine with Sonny and Sable.
4: He says that their pictures are already being used as currency in prison. Well, there's, there is a sign, isn't there, that says, Sonny plus Sable equals Baywatch. So I do like that attempt to get some maths into it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'd i watched that episode of Baywatch.
3: I didn't really get what this was. What is Sonny doing? This isn't even like guest ring announcing. This yeah. Is, this is just wandering out in some kind of gown. Yeah. With a magazine, spinning, leaving. Good payday for her, I guess.
2: When she leaves, Ross's announcement about Mike Tyson is being played to the live crowd as we hear it. Did you spot that? Yeah. He announces that just today, the WWF officially began negotiations with Mike Tyson to participate at WrestleMania 14 in Boston. The crowd boo. Yeah, that's not the reaction they wanted, is it? Lawler asks who he's going to fight. Ross says he has no answers, but says we'll be kept appraised of the situation. Lawler wonders if Vince McMahon is talking to Don King as we move on.
4: Doesn't he say something about the world's going to end or something Yeah. No, I thought thought that it was, I mean, interesting to hear what the announcement was, but really shocked at that reaction because I kind of thought it would get a pop. This almost feels, and I've obviously watched ahead
2: like a couple of roars, like they're almost a week too early. Like I think it's the following week they actually have Don King on and it almost feels like you should have just held on for another week to even mention it because this feels like too ambiguous of a sort of announcement. We've begun negotiations. Like, a week later, that could mean nothing. Yeah. Like, and I think that's why the crowd boo. I don't know.
3: Maybe it's just a crowd that doesn't like Mike Tyson.
4: Or that. I mean, next week, we might think about negotiating with some big stars. (laughs) But we're not going to mention it now. We're not going to mention it now, but we might think about negotiating with some big stars. It's all I'm going to say. I'm not going to let the cats out of the bag, but we might think about negotiating with some big stars. We might think about revealing what's in the box. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Mike Tyson announcement. Thumbs up, thumbs in the middle, thumbs down. Down.
3: Middle. I'm
2: going to go with down. Yeah, it's just a week too early for me in the grand scheme of things. Like, yeah, too ambiguous. It's time for our main event, Shawn Michaels versus Owen Hart for the WWF title. After retaining the WWF title against Ken Shamrock at D-Generation X in your house... Shawn Michaels and his DX pals opened the second hour of the December 8th episode of Rory's War. After Triple H once again made penis jokes in reference to Sergeant Slaughter's wife and Shawn Michaels claimed that Ken Shamrock had found out that he wasn't quite dangerous enough to take on the heartbreak kid, Michaels turned his attention to the man who reappeared at the end of the pay-per-view, Owen Hart. This would be the infamous promo where Shawn referred to Owen as being a nugget of turd that simply wouldn't flush announcer Jim Ross was suitably appalled at Michael's description. After first claiming that he knew Owen Hart wasn't in the building, Michael's demanded that someone drag Owen out to the ring, and until they did, DX would sit in the ring, drink Jack Daniels, smoke cigars, and play a game of strip poker. Returning from commercial break, DX did move their table to ringside so that the DOA and Los Bariquas could have a tag team match. Once that classic had finished, they moved back to the ring before the headbangers made their way out. Taking offence to DX, the pair upended the card table before Helmsley, China, and Michaels attacked. After powerbombing Thrasher through the card table from the top rope, Triple H and China continued to assault Mosh in the corner of the ring whilst Michaels laid across the top turnbuckle until Owen Hart entered the ring and quickly pounded the WWF champion in the face before escaping through the crowd. After a video package highlighting Owen's two ad hoc assaults to Shawn Michaels, Vince McMahon would open the second hour of the December 15th Rory's War. As with Steve Austin the previous week, McMahon claimed that Owen was endangering the safety of ringside WWF fans by entering and exiting through the audience. McMahon reminded Owen that he was still under contract with the World Wrestling Federation and ordered him to come to the ring. Once again, Owen made his way through the crowd, with decent-sized Owen chants ringing out. McMahon asked Owen who he thought he was. Owen asked Vince the same question, and told the WWF owner that he didn't owe him a goddamn thing. Owen referenced his brother Brett, and his brothers-in-law Davey Boy Smith and Jim Neidhart, doing what they needed to do, but now he was going to do what he needed to do, and remain in the WWF. Poking Vince in the shoulder, Owen said he'd spent nine years building a reputation in the company, and nobody meaning Shawn Michaels, was going to run him out of it. Vince told Owen this was clearly all about Owen being the WWF champion, but Owen said that it wasn't about a stupid piece of leather and tin, it was about his life and his dignity. Owen said that it was about making Shawn Michaels' life a living hell. Owen said he didn't give a shit if he were a sole survivor or a black sheep, and that while Shawn Michaels had started it, he was going to end it. Vince McMahon then requested uniform security come to the ring to ensure that Owen did not endanger the safety of ringside WWF fans by leaving through the crowd. McMahon then announced that Owen would compete the following week in the ring, entering via the ramp just like every other WWF superstar. Owen stared McMahon down before grabbing him by his jacket and leaving the ring to more Owen chants, with announcer Jim Cornette remarking that he'd never seen Owen Hart with more of a purpose in his entire career.
3: True. Good segment. Mm. Like, really good.
2: Yeah, so you two both watched this yeah, yeah. Owen promo as well. Like, yeah.
3: Great performance from Owen, I thought. Like, really different. Really angry.
4: It is. Uh, I did find it hard to accept him in that role as fir- at first. as kind of Because I've not really seen him have... He's had anger before, but it's a different anger yeah. to 94. And I suppose outside
2: of kind of being a babyface in Canada, like, we've not really seen him as a baby face, no less a baby face that talks. Yeah. Mm. Do you think the angle itself has potential to make money? Yeah.
3: yeah I, think I think it's quite good. There's, there's enough interest in this. You've got a, a well-laid-out story for it. I think you've got a few layers
4: as well, because you've got the history with with the pair, Yeah, which I think adds an element of interest anyway. I think you've got the angle with Brett and, yeah. and Sean. So. I think there's definitely enough to build on there. It seems like quite a logical progression. And it's like, if Owen didn't pursue Sean and try and right the wrongs that's happened in Montreal, then that would just make him look silly.
2: Yeah,
4: it would feel so
2: out of place to just come back and say, start feuding with Triple H. Yeah.
3: yeah. Interestingly enough, I did notice another sign in the crowd for that one. Go on then. Sonny is my fluffer. <laughs> Which I can't believe they let that on camera.
2: Does Paul know what a fluffer is? Somebody
4: fluffs your pillows.
3: Yep, that's it.
2: D Generation X would open the December twenty second season's beatings episode of Rory's War, walking to the ring in their dressing gowns. As Big Owen chance rang out, Triple H would claim that he had beaten Shawn Michaels in a rock paper scissors contest to win a match with Owen Hart. He then offered Owen his penis to suck on. I'm not kidding. <laughs> After Michaels then addressed his upcoming match with The Undertaker, Michaels and Helmsley removed their dressing gowns and pulled their pants off, wishing the fans of the WWF a Merry Christmas and telling the WWF superstars that if they wanted, they could come kiss them under the mistletoe, which was presumably over their dicks. Classy. Yep. This is the segment where they've obviously got Merry Christmas written on their arse cheeks. Okay. Commissioner Slaughter then made his way to the ring to tell DX he had a present for the pair of them. Slaughter informed Michaels that he hadn't defended his European title in 60 days and that if Michaels didn't defend it that night on Raw against an opponent of Slaughter's choosing, Sarge would strip HBK of the strap. After Michaels said that he didn't give away titles to anybody, Slaughter informed Michaels that he would be defending the European strap against Hunter Hearst Helmsley. DX acted outraged at this announcement as announcer Kevin Kelly speculated that Michaels might just hand the belt over wouldn't be the first time. (laughs) Helmsley then told Slaughter that he got what Slaughter was trying to do, ruin Michael's Christmas when Triple H beat him. Michael's then interrupted, telling Helmsley that the heartbreak kid didn't lay down for anybody. Later in the show, DX's dressing room would be shown with the sound of Michael's and Helmsley arguing behind it. The Michael's Helmsley bout would be scheduled to open the second hour of the show. That was until Owen Hart attacked Helmsley in the aisle, causing the bout to be postponed. With TV time remaining, the match would occur in the show's main event slot. Instantly, the entire DX dissension angle would be revealed to be a ruse when Michaels and Helmsley comedically locked up. Sean bumped to the mat, and Triple H ran the ropes for an age before splashing Michaels for the pin to capture the European title, with Michaels pretending to be devastated about losing the strap after the bell. As Michaels pretended to cry over the microphone, Commissioner Slaughter appeared in the entranceway. Sean then cut a promo, putting over how physically, mentally and emotionally demanding the match had been, while Helmsley claimed it was the greatest moment of his life, and the pair hugged and pointed at Slaughter, having pulled one over on him. As the show ended though, Slaughter revealed that the following week, Helmsley would have to defend his newly won European title against Owen Hart. So you saw highlights of this in the opening package. Yeah. What do you make to this? Is it just them arsing around? Is it a decent angle? Is it kind of insulting?
3: The problem is, with anything that they're doing in this, like, no one can have a serious bloody match with them. Yeah. And they suck all the validity out of feuds by being dickheads and just arsing around. So all the stuff with... The the anger with Slaughter was completely... wasn't really legitimised very well with Triple H because they're constantly just, like, pulling jokes at the sides of his chin. Triple yeah. H is always talking about his dick. And so when all of your build-up is full of that sort of stuff, it's very yeah. hard to have any kind of serious contest.
4: Yeah, I don't like it.
2: It's worth mentioning quickly here the near-riotous situations that Degeneration X have caused at house shows in the last couple of weeks. Okay. Firstly, on December 14th in Memphis, and then on December 15th in Little Rock, when it appeared to both sets of crowds that Shawn Michaels was cancelling their scheduled main events. At the Pyramid in Memphis, the DX duo of Michaels and Triple H were set to take on local babyfaces Jerry the King Lawler and Jeff Jarrett. After DX were pelted with all sorts by a slightly inebriated crowd on their way to the ring, mm. Michaels was hit by something went inside the ring itself and grabbed a mic telling the crowd, well, that just cost you your main event, before heading backstage with Helmsley and China, When the crowd realised that DX wouldn't be returning, they turned on Lawler and Jarrett in the ring hurling rubbish at them and demanding that they wrestle each other. When Lawler told the audience that he didn't have a contract to wrestle Jarrett, so the match couldn't happen, they were less than pleased. Over 130 fans who were watching the show on syndicated TV complained to the station, while another set picketed the station's offices the following morning. For the record, the WWF backed Michaels, saying that they ended the show early for the safety of the performers due to an unruly crowd. According to Dave Meltzer, in the December 22, 1997 Wrestling Observer, the following night was even worse. Apparently, the crowd became pissed at the poor quality of the card, which included a Kane versus Chains bout and a two-minute casket match between The Undertaker and The Rock, causing the WWF to end the show after five matches prior to a main event scheduled to feature Ken Shamrock against Hunter Hearst Helmsley. As soon as DX entered the arena, they began riling up the crowd, which again caused the audience to pelt them with whatever they could find. After being hit by what Meltzer says was a piece of paper, Michaels once again told the crowd that they had lost their main event and the DX trio left the arena. The following is from the aforementioned issue of The Observer. Fans thinking it was just part of the act didn't react right away. After several minutes, DX failed to come back to the ring, no opponent for Helmsley appeared, and the ring announcer said that they had refused to come out and that the show was over. At this point, a real riot started, with chairs and whiskey bottles being thrown everywhere, including a police trying to get the crowd out of the building. The situation got so bad that the police had to spray the building with tear gas to get the fans outside. Several fans tried to get refunds and were unsuccessful, and at that point, a second riot took place in the parking lot before the police broke it up. At least one fan was rushed to the hospital, but there didn't appear to be any serious injuries to fans either night. The incident was so out of hand it was reported on the news later that night, with at least one report giving the impression that the WWF wouldn't be allowed back in the city, although, with all this happening at deadline, it is really too soon to figure out how this is going to unfold locally. The reports from this event, live, pointed the finger directly at Michaels for the problem starting, although the behaviour of the fans was the actual real problem. But unlike in Memphis, the real problems didn't occur until the fans realized they weren't going to see the main event and that DX walking out wasn't simply part of the show to get heat." End quote. Mm-hmm. A week later, the Observer clarifies that the situation was born out of a scheduled presentation to local area hero Danny Hodge. For some reason, Shawn Michaels decided he wanted to be the one to present the award to Hodge and talk the agents into booking him into the spot what was supposed to be a respectful ceremony, saw the audience immediately react to Michael's consistently to how he was presented on television, as a heel, ignoring what was supposed to be a straight-laced ceremony.
3: Probably shouldn't be doing that, then, if you're positioned as that type of character.
2: But the storming off after you're getting shit thrown at you, where where do you stand on that?
3: It depends what it is. If If someone has a bottle thrown at them and it hits them in the face, then actually there is concern for your safety. Yeah. And I think that's fair enough. If people are lobbing really dangerous material at you, then you probably would want to leave. But if it is a piece of screwed-up paper... Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, we we saw what was thrown at Hulk Hogan when he cut his heel promo. Mm, yeah. And it was mostly... It was, cups it was paper and, cups yeah. and screwed-up flyers and things. It's trash and people are showing their anger but no one's thrown anything dangerous, you know, and it doesn't make you leave the ring. Actually, it just means that you've got really good heat.
4: Oh, I think it's a, a tough one, to be fair. So he's got to take some responsibility for the fact that their antics have been so repellent that they're going to garner that kind of reaction. But also the fans have to take some responsibility as well because you can't throw stuff at people. But do you not feel like the WWF and WCW
2: have encouraged things like fans jumping in the ring and this kind of trash pelting over the last year or so like both companies in the last few weeks have booked angles where fans have got in the ring i don't think you
3: could necessarily directly attribute that to what's happening in these places do you not think well we weren't there we don't know the tone of the place we don't know what type of people were there we don't know how drunk they were it's hard for us to speculate at this point it's feasible that that might have had a something to do with it and it's feasible that there may have been such big bell ends on the screen that they're just picking up all this sort of heat off their own back. I don't know.
4: Yeah, I think I think it's a tough one, but there seems perhaps a bit of a lack of common sense on on everybody's part on this occasion. Perhaps
2: there's quite a funny piece on the Cornet timeline about this where when he's talking about kind of these things that happen with DX, he's saying, yeah, in the 80s, when I was with the Midnight Express, yeah, quite often, like, people would throw shit at us. He said, one town even we went to, like, loads of people started throwing tennis balls at me, which was a bad idea because I had a tennis racket. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, quite a lot of those balls went back at them. Yeah. It's quite funny.
6: Oh, my God, Owen Hart's in the ring! Owen Hart has just
0: knocked Sean Michaels right through a table! WWF champion. What is Owen Hart doing here? He's not even supposed to be in the arena.
1: Owen Hart, you, my friend, are that small, little, stinking,
0: stanky nugget. Wait a minute, it's Owen Hart again. Owen Hart is hammering away at Shawn Michaels.
2: After a short video package highlighting Owen Hart's return, the Black Heart which is an awesome nickname, by the Ooh. way, makes his way to the ring. He gets a decent but not massive reaction as JR hypes Owen's accomplishments in the promotion. JR says that he feels in his bones that tonight is Owen's night, and Jerry Lawler says that Owen is perhaps the most underrated superstar in WWF history. Good.
3: Interesting point.
2: The DX theme hits to bring us the WWF champion, Shawn Michaels, accompanied by China and her new bosoms. Jim Ross wonders where Triple H is. As the epileptic fit-inducing DX entrance video plays, Owen dives over the top rope onto Sean, and the match begins with Owen punching Michaels in the face. And because that effect's still going on, it looks really cool. I hate that effect. As Owen confronts China, Michaels stalks him, but Owen knocks Michaels down. Ross talks about how Michaels, a notoriously fast starter, has been taken off his game by Owen. Like, I really Mm. liked that as a point. As Owen chases Shawn Michaels up the ramp, he hits HBK with a suplex on the steel and shoves his face onto the metal. The pair make their way back into the ring and Michaels gets tied up in the ropes, but manages to kick Owen in the face and free himself. Michaels charges Owen and Owen backdrops Shawn to the outside as we go to commercial break. When we return, Owen is dropping Shawn dick first over the steel railing, with Michaels selling big time. Jim Ross notes that Triple H, on crutches, has made his way to ringside. Mm. Owen drops Sean Ball first on the steel again to a reaction. Owen rolls back into the ring and drags Sean over the top rope face first. Michaels reverses an Owen Irish whip and China trips Owen. Owen leaves the ring to confront her, allowing Michaels to shove Owen off the apron right into the steel railing, Michael's first offence in the bout. It really does take a good few minutes for him to get anything in.
3: It's quite quite a nasty-looking bump that he takes. It's a good start to the match. Yeah, yeah, really good.
2: Michaels hits an axe handle off the apron and taunts a prone Owen, hitting him in the face. Back inside, Michaels whips Owen hard across the ring. Michaels hits a textbook pile driver
4: and covers Owen for a two, his kick out getting a reaction. I mean, he did a pile driver at um, Bad Blood, didn't he? Yeah, but... I don't remember seeing him do rider very often before that.
2: Yeah, I don't think it's like a regular, regular part of his move set, but he busts it out every now and well, again. He does it well. Yeah, but that and his DDT that he did were good. Yeah, Michaels hits a really nice DDT and gets another two. Michaels applies a sleeper hold, which Owen tries to fight, wailing his arms. I think this is about the most active sleeper hold I think I've ever seen.
3: Mm. Yeah, he's constantly trying to move and get out of it. It
2: likes it. actually mm. feels like he's trying to fight it. Yeah,
3: lots of people just go, mm. kind of go into this dopey sort of mindset mm. until their arm starts getting raised.
4: So, I, I know because we watched this earlier, you you kind of very much liked it and felt that it's some of the best acting that you'd seen. Yeah, like in terms of someone selling a sleeper hold, mm. like, yeah, rather than going,
2: right, I can have a break for two minutes now. Like, Owen was actually trying to get the hold over and get his fight to escape it over, which I thought was really good. Owen chants from the crowd. Owen tries to escape, shoving Michaels into the corner, but Michaels keeps it applied. Owen brings Sean up on his back once again and shoves him into the corner, but again Michaels applies the hold, only this time Owen lifts Sean up and drops him with a back suplex. The referee begins counting both men down, but they both make it to their feet. Owen gets fists and a high back body drop, followed by WrestleMaths in the corner. Sean takes his big corner bump and walks into a really lovely clothesline from Mm. Owen. Like Bruce's. No, but like actually safe. No, yeah, but like just big and powerful. Owen covers and gets a two. Owen hits his spinning wheel kick for another two. Owen hits a gorgeous overhead belly-to-belly suplex for a third two. Owen whips Michaels into the corner and charges, but Michaels moves and Owen bumps stomach first into the corner. Rebounding out, he ducks a sweet chin music attempt and hits his enziguri as the crowd are worked to their most sustained reaction all mm. night. Yep. It's over, yes it's over, shouts JR as Owen applies the sharpshooter close to the ropes. From ringside, Triple H tries to whack Owen with his crutch but misses on the first attempt, hitting the ropes instead. The referee calls for the DQ win for Owen at 10:14, with DX assaulting Owen as the show... And 1997 for the WWF goes off the air. Good match. Yeah, it yeah, was a good really, little match. For, really for... enjoyed
3: it. It was there was there was lots of drama in it. Like good performances from both. Shame about the ending because I don't think it really should have ended like that. You know, it's how Owen leans in. Yeah. Like with the first miss, Owen's leaning his head in to get hit because he's you know considerate in in that manner that yeah. it goes in the right way.
4: Let me help you attack me. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I thought this was very good, actually, for for what it was, for, for kind of main, for what it was as a main event or a raw. I thought this was it was
3: was good. I think on commentary they say a couple of times this should be a pay per view main event. Yeah, and, and it, totally, right. it totally feels like this should be a pay per view main event. There's mm-hmm. enough build behind it, and it should be in that position. Yeah, so it's a good match. It should have been a 20 minute match, 30 minute match on a pay per view, and it would have been excellent.
2: Yeah, this was by, like, a million miles, the best in-ring action of the show. But it's Owen Hart and Shawn Michaels, so kind of what would you really expect? Yeah. Yeah, and, you know, obviously we've just discussed the Cornette promo and I've kind of said that, like, the crowd all night hasn't been reacting for wrestlers wrestling. But as it turns out, when actually two good wrestlers start having a good match, like, and okay, yes, this has a decent amount of story behind it, they react to it and they're into it and they're going along with it
3: because, in many ways, Cornet's right. You know, people mm. going to a wrestling show want to see some wrestling, mm. they like the storylines that's been shown, and they like the big spots and this, that, and the other. But at the end of the day, they like to see a good wrestling match,
2: yeah. And like the final sort of four or five minutes of this, like, is an absolute frenzy, and you know that end sequence is really, really good. Yes, he kind of, you're right, he has to lean in to let Helmsley hit him. And yeah, you just know the minute he applies the sharpshooter right next to the ropes that like, that's what's going to
4: happen. Yeah. But yeah, but that's what should happen on this Raw though, isn't it? Yeah, but it... for me, that should build to them having a pay-per-view match. Yes, that's, that's the only flaw with this, is that this should be the prelude to something grander. But unfortunately, that's pretty
2: much it for Owen Hart's main event run. Unfortunately for Owen, his options at the top of the card are pretty limited. The WWF's heir apparent, Stone Cold Steve Austin, doesn't want to work with him, for understandable reasons, and as is clear from this, he's not going to be working with Shawn Michaels on an ongoing basis. In his timeline of the WWF, 1997, Jim Cornette recalls that Owen was sold on returning to the company with promises of being made the Canadian star and a push that would make him as big as Brett. Cornette also backs up the theory that Michaels instantly refused to put Owen Hart over, perhaps providing us with a definitive reason as to why his feud is quite rapidly transferred to Triple H. Mm-hmm. For an assessment of Owen post Montreal, we'll go to James Dixon and Justin Henry's Titan sinking. Quote In truth, Hart had completely soured on being part of the WWF. It's an easy position to understand given the ignominy bestowed upon his brother after more than 13 years of undying loyalty and body-breaking service. Brothers-in-law, Davy Boy Smith and Jim Neidhart, found their way out of the company to follow Brett into WCW, though Smith had to buy out his WWF deal with the forfeiture of $150,000. That left Owen as the only remaining Hart family member under McMahon rule, and that was not about to change. Owen had asked to be released, but Vince refused to let him out of his contract, insisted Brett. When I approached Eric Bischoff about my brother, he was interested, but he didn't want to pay Owen the same money he was making with Vince. The hitman also recalled taking up his brother's cause with Vince Russo, noting to the company scribe that McMahon wasn't good for his word and that it was impossible for Owen to trust anything he ever said again. Willing to forego a contract that was to pay close to three hundred thousand U.S. dollars For each of the next three years, Owen felt he could simply no longer work for a man he couldn't trust, confirmed Hart's widow Martha. However, McMahon refused to let Owen out of his contract. Had Owen gotten his way, he would have been free to do as he pleased sometime in 1998 anyway. According to Martha, her husband was approached with a five-year contract offer from Titan in 1996 that provided the security of $300,000 a year two hundred and fifty thousand plus fifty thousand in merchandising, though Owen was disinclined over the length. What Owen really wanted was to sign on for two years and then retire from wrestling altogether, claimed Martha. He had ideas of moving on to other interests, like running a bike shop after he retired. However, McMahon wouldn't budge, so Owen signed a contract that wouldn't release him until he was thirty six years old. It was then that we had to finally accept wrestling was his career like it or not end quote Mm. sort of very sad when you look forward on anything like that with Owen I think yeah it does kind of feel like he's kept prisoner a little bit like it's almost like Vince wants to keep him out of spite and yeah Bischoff just isn't quite willing to pay the money so kind of Owen's stuck there
3: yeah
2: and it's just a shame that he doesn't get that chance like I'm not saying he would have been you know an all-time main eventer and gotten as hot as Austin because he very obviously wouldn't have but it's a real shame that he doesn't get a chance to just have a shot at it. Yeah. I can understand Austin's reasons for not working with him. And I guess in a weird way, I can almost understand Sean's. But, yeah, it's just a shame.
3: I mean, it was one of the biggest shames of Owen Hart is that he hit that pile driver on Stone Cold. Yeah. Like, if he hadn't have done that, then yeah. Austin would have probably been open to work with him. Yeah. And, they, and he could have had a main event build and he wouldn't have had to go anywhere near Sean because austin was there to as a as a another another person that was sitting on the top of the pile
2: and yeah and if he could have outlasted you know the last few months of sean and kind of remained somewhere in the mix near the top of the yeah. car then when sean's gone you know they're really kind of midway through 98 in a desperate struggle for new main eventers yeah you know you kind of have austin and taker and kane and mankind and for a period of time like that's really it So had he not been defined down, there might have been a slot for him. Yeah. But, you know, obviously we'll never know, and that's not kind of how it played out. But Mm. Shawn Michaels versus Owen Hart, thumbs up, thumbs in the middle, thumbs down. Up. Up. Yeah, definitely up. The match itself was just too good to be anything else. Mm. Yeah. Like you say, you would have loved to see a 20, 30-minute version of this in a pay-per-view main event.
3: Yeah, possibly at the Royal Rumble. Thoughts on the show overall? Overall, I liked it. There's, a, there's enough good stuff in there there's not a lot of great wrestling in there, but as you watch it, there's an awful lot of like quick paced entertainment. there's some big spots I love the chainsaw Charlie stuff. yeah, the main event was built to like a really a strong point. you've got the interesting cornet stuff in there, uh, and even like the opening segment's got like you know intrigue and it's a bit weird and different. so there's a lot of interest going throughout the show. Would I have liked to see more wrestling in it? Quite probably. Would I have liked to see less DOA? Quite probably. <laughs> but there's enough in there to be good.
4: Yeah, I'd, I'd say overall thumbs up for that show as a whole from me. There was plenty of good stuff in this, and I, I liked... I thought some of the booking was, was, was really quite good and some of the kind of little nudges going forward. So, like I say, I'm quite intrigued to see what will happen with the Nation of Domination kind of leader storyline with Farouk and The Rock. I thought the bit with Cornet was really good, even though I didn't necessarily like the stuff with Goldust, or the artist formerly known as Goldust and Austin. I could see the logical booking there. I thought the stuff at the end with I was good. There's was, there was lots of good stuff, and the bits that were bad, you know what? Because there's so many segments, it's all short. If you don't like something, it's not going to last long.
2: Yeah, actually a pretty enjoyable episode of Raw. Yeah, don't get me wrong, Like this is not a show at the minute that's a hit every week arguably it never is you know there are always going to be some weeks that miss but yeah this was pretty good okay four out of the five matches mattered very little but the segments that were presented in my opinion were for the most part entertaining the one match that was framed as having any kind of importance despite having a predictable bullshit finish delivered from an in-ring perspective plus yeah terry funk ran around swinging an actual chainsaw how can you not like that unless Mm -hmm. your arm gets lopped off in the front row match of the night in mvp then uh
3: the match is the main event because it was the best match mvp goes to terry funk for somehow managing to do what he did and not kill anyone
4: i think it's tough and obviously match is kind of a foregone conclusion for the main event i think i'd find it quite difficult to say who my mvp would be out of jim Cornette and the rock Okay, Because I thought they were, they were both very good performances. And special mention to Farouk's kind of mad upset face. <laughs> I, I kind of like the Chainsaw Charlie stuff, but there was too much kind of like nonsensical stuff with the logic holes in that. I think I'll go for Cornette. I just, I just thought that promo was fantastic. What brilliantly delivered. Yeah, match of the night. I'm going to go with Shawn Michaels and Owen Hart because
2: none of the other matches were even meant to be anything, which is how things are going now. But the main event delivered some pretty good action. An MVP... I'm going to go with Steve Austin for making what could have probably been quite a dumb segment at the open of the show. He made it over by simply being himself. And yeah, he is the way the company are going. It's all centred around him. And that becomes even more apparent when you watch the first roar of 98. At the moment for them, he is pretty much the goose laying the golden eggs. Like although he can't compete every week on an in-ring basis. Yeah, all he has to do is come out, hit his catchphrases, kick some ass and hit a stunner. And that's what the audience wants to
3: see. And right now, that's what they're being given most weeks. And is is DX a second fiddle to that, or is it even the third fiddle to someone else?
2: I'd say they're second, because obviously Michaels is the champion. And, you know, at the minute, kind of prior to the Rumble, because obviously Sean's engaged with Taker, like they're very obviously being kept apart. Like it doesn't take a genius to work out even at this stage what the main event of Mania 14 is going to be but we just need to hold off on that a little bit not too long but a little bit I can't believe that one of the Barikos ended up in the main event of WrestleMania 14 (laughs) well after the feud they've had all year it was obviously going to be some combination
3: of DOA and lost mean it's such a big build mullet of the night actually some option on this Luna because Luna's got a mullet and Scott Taylor's got a mullet but it goes to the child what? that was sitting on someone's shoulders during that weird sunny moment, Yeah, who's just got this awesome mullet from the back. Yeah, he did point this out to me when we watched it.
2: Like, yeah, look at that kid's mullet. And it's like, yeah, yep. that small child definitely has a mullet. And that's pretty fucking it was, special.
4: It's interesting that you had some choice and had to mullet over. <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs> well done. <laughs> so,
4: that's it. 1997
2: is in the bag.
3: It's only taken three years to get through.
2: Final thoughts on it? A lot of change. Jim Cornette, I think, perhaps sums it up best when he wraps up his timeline of the WWF DVD. He says, 1997 isn't the year that does record business, but it's the year that sets up the years that will do record business. Not all of the pay-per-views or the episodes of Raw that we've seen have been good, but when you think about the highlights we've had, they've been particularly high. To name a few, and if you want to just kind of call back to them the final four match back in february
7: yeah
2: austin versus brett at wrestlemania 13 yeah very good the formation of the heart foundation really cool and i'm pretty sure you both watched this the promo where brett stops owen and bulldog wrestling like yeah yeah. it's really really good owen's acting in that segment is phenomenal the three faces of foley angle Mm -hmm. yeah Like, how good were those interviews and how good was that payoff for Cactus Jack's debut? Okay, we saw kind of a redo of it on this night, but that moment when he emerges for that false Count Anywhere match is so phenomenal. Yeah. The entire card of Canadian Stampede. Yeah. Yeah. The slow build to the debut of Kane. Oh, yeah. Yeah.
3: Probably my favourite bit of the year, weirdly.
2: Hell in a Cell pitting Shawn Michaels against The Undertaker.
4: Yeah. I mean, and with the Kane stuff, I I think this, the fact that they've still carried on using this idea of keeping the um, Taker and Kane apart, uh, I think is is a nod to keeping that good work on the storyline going, actually.
3: Yeah, and it's like anything with that. And we kind of, I've really enjoyed seeing this this early part of Kane because once he has, once he fights the Undertaker, once he loses like a regular person, it's got, his... Pandora's box and it is open, and you can't ever return him back to the point where he came from. At the point we're still watching at the minute, he is just the most awesome character.
2: Mm. The continued rise of Stone Cold Steve Austin, despite his injury, yeah,
3: yeah, hard to do. You're going to continue moving up the popularity ranks even when you've just had your neck broken and you can't really work. Yeah, I mean that's that's hard.
4: I mean, just to, to some extent, I, I, I think I can never really say. Having the broken neck has helped him.
2: Yeah, well I Could, think we but, have
4: this discussion. But, like... but, but it's a funny thing, isn't it? That it means that he gets to do other stuff. The the, the kind of the, the other stuff, so he kind of it's just got this other aspect to him and he can just rely. And I think this is part of getting, you know, kind of catchphrases and mannerisms and like little affectations over mm-hmm. is the fact that He's on screen for a limited amount of time. It's not wrestling, and it's all the kind of character work. So that all of that is really honed. When it's in the regular week-in, week-out stuff, and the wrestling again, he's there. He's there. Like It's the complete package. The formation
2: of D-Generation X. Mm. Like, I know we've not always gushed over what they've done, but... But
3: they're, they're going to be a constant factor for a long mm. time.
2: Yeah, they are going to be a big part of 98, a big part of 99, and kind of a big part of early 2000. And then, obviously, their sort of reformation in... 06 to 09 is a big deal as well like you know this is a faction that has a massive impact in WWF history and we kind of saw it begin with you know just Triple H and Shawn Michaels being forced to team up and then they just started hanging out sort of more regularly and then they got Rick Rude and yeah yeah and then you know by the end of the year they had a pay-per-view named after them Mm. and the rapid ascent of The Rock in the last couple of months
3: where what like Right at the start of the year, what position was he in? What was he doing?
2: He was on Shotgun Saturday night and he kind of, you know, we saw the early stages of Marrow and Sable kind of splitting prior to his knee injury. And then obviously he captures the IC title. It all goes rapidly downhill for him and then he gets injured.
3: But if you take where he is at that point and then like 12 months later, Mm. what he's actually turned himself into is like such a transformation of character in the positive direction yeah
2: shamrock yeah i mean that that's also worth mentioning yes he had some what what a bumpy start yeah how should we describe it teething problems yeah shall we say vader helped him with those by knocking (laughs) his teeth out
3: and bulldog helped him with those by giving him some dog food
2: and michael's helped him with those by giving him new promo skills after dx (laughs) but yeah like He was a guy that when I started watching it in 1999, like I instantly really liked. And I guess because he has that sort of air of legitimacy and it's almost a shame he wasn't around a bit longer. Mm, Because he's not around
3: that long, is he? No,
2: it's only kind of mid to late 99. He's gone and you just think... Actually, if you just stuck around a bit longer and faced Jericho and Angle and Benoit, like yeah. you might have had like a little bit of a renaissance. Yeah, yeah
4: I could, I could see, certainly see a very good match with Angle happening.
2: Yeah, and and Benoit for that yeah. matter. Like I think that that would have been really quite cool. Yes, we've suffered through endless D.O.A. versus Los Barrios matches, and on the whole, a lot of the pay per views haven't been particularly great. But when you list the highs, like we just have. Like, there is a lot of memorable stuff. Yeah. 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 And if you try and think about the memorable stuff in a particular calendar year, you can probably name, like, three or four things. But, you know, I think we named, like, nine or ten that, you know, people remember today.
3: Has it been the best year that we've seen?
2: It depends on how you define it. I think there are years in terms of, like, overall in-ring work and overall card-wise. You know, I prefer 1996. But, yeah, it's hard to turn your nose up at a year that features Austin versus Brett and Helena in a Cell. It's these,
3: it's these huge sort of like keystone moments, yeah. isn't it, that happen during the year. So overall, there's some very ropey stuff happening, but there's these massive like peaks of high that they've got.
2: And speaking of memorable moments, it doesn't get much more memorable than the events of Montreal. Yeah, yeah
4: true. Gosh, we didn't even mention that night. Like, gosh,
2: we didn't. It provided us with nearly 12 hours of discussion. <laughs> Almost 20 years after it actually happened. That's mad to think. Like, I don't know is if you can really consider it a high point, which is why I didn't include it in the list of high points, but it's yeah. a moment that...
3: It's a different thing, is it? It's you wouldn't look back and say, God, wasn't that great? Yeah. You'd say, wasn't that interesting?
2: Before we began our journey through the year, I phrased 1997 as the Old Testament of the Attitude Era. And it would seem like the WWE actually agree. Later this year, they're releasing a DVD Blu-ray set focusing solely on 1997, entitled 1997, Dawn of the Attitude Era. Have
3: you got a job with
2: WWE? It was also undoubtedly the year that the new generation died. There's such a vast difference between the company at the start of the year and how the company presents its product at the end of the year. And I almost don't know if there's a single twelve-month period where the promotion looks more different mm. at the start of the year, at the end of the year than yeah. than this one. Most notably, Brett the Hitman Hart going like he is such a big part of that new generation era that him being absent is he was, he was such a void.
3: In those early ones that we were watching, wasn't it was was it Bret Hart who was heralded as the leader of the new generation? Yeah, it was him who was put down and. And so all those people that kind of came around that, that was, he was the the, the, fi- the the figure that everything was built around and bits of that have been eroded away as it's gone along and then finally he's gone. So it's not really anymore.
2: Well, there's only one other person, I think, who is really synonymous with being at the top of the card during that era left. And though he doesn't know it as this year ends, especially considering his power base is stronger than ever,
3: His days are very much numbered. It's a very strange thing, isn't it, with him? Because, yeah, not only has he jumped to the top of the pile, he's also managed to get rid of anyone that's an issue for him. And he's so safe. He is so safe where he is.
2: And, you know, I think we've said this kind of going towards the end of Montreal, like, you know, if our story and our timeline that we've covered is like a five-act play, like, Montreal is probably the end of Act 4. And, like this last little bit is act five and we've got our depending on how you see him protagonist or antagonist (laughs) and there's one final sting in the tail there's one final twist that kind of just changes everything and he doesn't know it yet but we'll find out about it soon but that's a story for another day and on that bombshell it's time to wrap up today's episode but before we can go if you've enjoyed what you've listened to today here are the top five ways you can support the show five Give us a like on Facebook at facebook.com slash podcast. a follow on Twitter at newgenpodcast, or on Instagram at newgenpodcast and interact with us. Number four. Leave us a five-star review and some kind words on iTunes. There's been many of those lately, so thank you very much. Yeah, there's been quite a few. Uh, again, echoing the thanks. Number three. Take a look at our back catalogue that's going up one by one on botchermania.com, including video episodes. Number two check out some of the absolutely free bonus content that we post regularly over at soundcloud.com slash newgenpodcast featuring matches from the WWE, NXT, Chikara, Michinoku Pro and All Japan Pro Wrestling. There's more going up all the time, including bouts that you, the listeners, have chosen. Numero one. And if you don't mind giving a little something back, you can pledge to us over at patreon.com slash newgenpodcast where there are some cool rewards for the different levels of donation – and we're working on even more ways of giving
4: thanks in the future. So, remember when we watched Santa with Muscles? Yeah, I really enjoyed Santa with Muscles, but then again, I don't have the burden of insight. No, you don't.
3: I really, really hated it. Do you not think you've gained the burden of insight yet? No, because as I've said before, I'm quite gullible. Well, I thought you
2: loved it. So let's take the time to analyse another epic entry in Hulk Hogan's Hollywood CV. One that was hyped really fucking heavily on WCW television at the tail end of 1997. Mm. I heard it referred to so many fucking times watching those episodes of Nitro that I figure, let's watch it. Episode 85 will be Assault on
3: Devil's Island. Assault on Devil's Island. Now, I've seen a lot of Hulk Hogan films now, actually. More than you'd like. Suburban Commando. Mr. Nanny? I've never seen Mr. Nanny. No Holds Barred. No Holds Barred. Santa with Muscles. Santa with Muscles. So, You've seen Gremlins too? he's in that. He's not a lead role. Or in Rocky. So I've seen three Hulk hogan star vehicles and I haven't liked any of them, primarily for his acting ability. This one has Shannon Tweed in it. I'm a bigger fan of her. Well, let's find out how it
2: turns out, mm. whether it led to a sort of A-level major... Hollywood career for Hulk Hogan.
3: Yes, let's find that out, shall <laughs> we?
4: My name is Stuart Brooks. I'll say goodbye. I'm no watch. Goodbye. I'm at yes, Bull Scrimmins. Goodbye and see you next time.